Good morning. Good morning. I think we'll get started. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, it is so encouraging to see the level of interest here in um, attacking New York City's most significant source of greenhouse gas emissions, our buildings. Uh, my name is Amy Turner. I am the, can you hear me better now? All right, <laughs> thank you. Um, my name is Amy Turner. I am the executive director of the NYC Climate Action Alliance, a growing coalition of New Yorkers committed to helping New York City achieve its greenhouse gas emissions reduction goals. I am also a co-chair of the Environmental Law Committee here at the New York City Bar Association, and on behalf of the committee and the alliance, I welcome you here this morning. We are so thrilled to have all of you here today for a deep dive into Intro 1253, New York's very new law to drive emissions reductions from the city's largest buildings, those greater than 25,000 square feet. This law is so new that I am adjusting this morning to how to refer to it, and I would like to be corrected from, by anyone who knows better than I do. The law uh, was enacted uh, on Friday or over the weekend. I believe it is now Local Law 97 of 2019, but again, please correct me if I don't have that right. Um, anyway, Intro 1253, or whatever we're calling it, and several of the new laws passed in April as part of the Climate Mobilization Act uh, has been a long time coming. Um, in a city as complex as New York, with our diverse building stock and an even more diverse population, there is no one-size-fits-all for building emissions reductions. But the complexity of reducing emissions from buildings doesn't mean we shouldn't act. New York City's buildings account for two-thirds of our city's carbon footprint. In order to lessen New York's carbon footprint at the rate needed to do our city's part to forestall the most devastating impacts of climate change, we must drastically reduce the carbon emissions attributable to heating, cooling, and powering our buildings. It's simple math. There is no way to reduce the city's building emissions by any meaningful percentage without going big on buildings' emissions reductions. As important as it is to tackle our building emissions and to do so at a comprehensive citywide level, we cannot abide top-down approaches that fail to protect everyday New Yorkers, not only from the direct impacts of climate change and building pollution, but also from the secondary impacts driven by the cost to retrofit buildings, impacts such as gentrification, displacement, and a shrinking affordable housing stock. It is critical that we hear the voices of all New Yorkers, including and especially those from frontline communities, as we build consensus around how to achieve carbon emissions reductions in New York City. The process to develop, draft, and negotiate Intro 1253 was one that recognized the many perspectives at work in reducing New York City's building emissions, each of them unique and each of them New York. This morning, you'll hear about this process from some of the many stakeholders who participated in it in some way. You'll hear about the working group convened by the Urban Green Council to build consensus and develop policy. You'll hear from the many stakeholders that influenced New York City, the, uh, the New York City Council's final version of Intro 1253. And you'll hear about building consensus around one of the many issues that was a key concern in developing these emissions requirements, maintaining housing affordability. At the same time, Intro 1253 is only a starting point. There's so much more work to be done, both to implement Intro 1253 and to retrofit the buildings at a wide scale. So this afternoon, we'll explore these challenges more deeply. We'll hear about several ways that market-based mechanisms can help finance and incentivize the retrofits needed to reduce building greenhouse gas emissions, including, of course, PACE financing, which was also passed into law as part of the Climate Mobilization Act. 
We'll close out the day with the opportunity to engage, all of us, in a facilitated conversation led by Tim Mealy of the Meridian Institute to explore and highlight many of the challenges and the work that remains with respect to Intro 1253 and scaling up building retrofits in New York City. Before I get started, I'd like to say some thank yous. Thank you to all of our speakers, uh, all here on a purely volunteer basis to share their valuable perspectives and experiences and expertise. Um, thank you to our three keynote speakers, uh, John Lee of the Mayor's Office of Sustainability, um, Nick Wudzowski, who will be here on behalf of Councilmember Costa Constantinides, um, and John Mandyke of the Urban Green Council, who I'll turn the podium over to in a moment. Um, and thank you also to our several panelists, Cecil Corbin-Mark, Jared Rodriguez, Pete Sikora, Lisa DeVito, Fred Lee, Donnell Baird, Helen Shinani, Sadie McKeown, and to the people from their teams who've been so helpful as we've prepared for this event. Thank you to Alexis Saba and Katie Ullman for moderating our panel discussions and for taking such a strong leadership role in planning and executing your respective panels. And thank you to our volunteer discussion leaders for this afternoon's facilitated conversation, Adriana Espinosa, Carl Hum, Adam Hinge, and Kevin Healy, as well as Tim Mealy. Thank you to the Bar Association staff for their hard work in pulling this event together, and thank you to all of you for joining us today and sharing your perspectives and expertise. Finally, I'd like to say thank you on behalf of myself and the NYC Climate Action Alliance to the Ida and Robert Gordon Family Foundation and its principals, Roberta Gordon and Rick Greenberg. Your support of this program has been truly critical. Thank you for helping us to gather this group of committed New Yorkers to further explore building emissions reductions in New York City. We hope that today will be a continuation of the hard work that has been done to date to chip away at New York City's carbon footprint. And we look forward to continuing that work when today is through. With that, I'd like to introduce our first keynote speaker, John Mandyke. We're grateful to John for joining us this morning to discuss Urban Green Council's convening the 80 by 50 Buildings Partnership and drafting the blueprint for efficiency report that informed many of the elements of Intro 1253. The Urban Green Council is a nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to transforming buildings for a sustainable future in New York City and around the world. John joined the Urban Green Council in 2018 as its first ever CEO. Prior to joining Urban Green, he capped a 25-year career at United Technologies Corporation as Chief Sustainability Officer. John is also a visiting scientist at the Harvard University T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where he provides strategy to help define the future of healthy, sustainable cities, and an adjunct professor at the University of Connecticut School of Business, where he was recruited to design and teach the sustainability required for all full-time MBA students. John is the founding chair of the Corporate Advisory Board for the World Green Building Council and a former chair of Urban Green. John, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Amy. Thank you, Amy. It's great to be with all of you today um, for this really, really uh, important event. I have to tell you, in my estimation, in my view, the law that was just passed will be the largest disruption in the history of New York City real estate. Billions and billions of dollars are going to be spent. Tens of thousands of buildings are going to have to take action. Labor is going to have to ramp up. New business models could emerge. And I'm also hopeful that new technologies will be brought to market. This is a big opportunity, and with any disruption we know comes opportunity and risk. And I hope that through the course of the conversation today, we'll explore 
both those opportunities and those risks. So I want to thank Amy for pulling this uh, program together. Um, it's important that we understand where we are and where we're going forward. In a certain respect, we're only just beginning, and I'll cover a little bit of that. As she said, um, I'm really um, honored to be here this morning as the CEO of the Urban Green Council. We're an environmental nonprofit organization, multi-stakeholder. Our mission is to transform buildings for a sustainable future here in New York City and around the world. So I just want to talk to you a little bit about Urban Green in the context of what we do because it helps inform what we did when it comes um, to the new law. So at Urban Green, we do four things, and we do them really, really well. It's our core competency. First thing that we do at Urban Green is we convene. We have a history of bringing stakeholders together to answer some of the biggest questions that we need answered when it comes to either sustainability, the environment, green buildings, the future of our city, and we've been doing it for a long, long time. In fact, Mayor Bloomberg appointed Urban Green as the convening uh, source for the building's resiliency plan, uh, for the city's resiliency plan after Superstorm Sandy. In that effort, we brought together 200 experts over a year to build the, the resiliency plan that was enacted into law. So we convene, and we've done, we've done that for a long, long time. The second core competency we have is in research. Um, we answer the big questions. Typically, when we convene, it leads to questions that need answered. We bring together our technical expertise to answer those questions um, from a wide perspective. We just released a new report on STEAM, for example, which is one of the major sources of carbon emissions in New York City for buildings, taking a new look at an age-hole problem from a STEAM perspective. So we do a lot of research as well. The third thing that we do is we advocate. Um, over the last 10 years, we've had 68 pieces of legislation enacted, um, working with uh, partners from the mayor's office that is here and the city council um, you know, to, to find the best answers uh, to the questions that we're trying to solve. And then finally, we educate. Over the last 10 years, we've reached nearly 33,000 people, not only in New York City, but our education programs and our training programs uh, expand across the United States and into Canada. Um, last year, we had training in 57 cities um, in the United States. Um, and in that training, what we're doing is we're bringing, we're, we're, we're helping to support the new green economy by bringing uh, sustainability and green building and uh, education and training typically to the building trades, and so the labor unions are our big uh, training partner with us in that regard. So I tell you that because those four things have come together in how we've approached um, our work uh, when it comes to this issue. Now, buildings. Buildings matter. Uh, they matter particularly here in New York. Um, as Amy has said, buildings represent nearly 70% of our carbon emissions in New York. Um, so you'll see from this slide that transportation represents um, a little bit less than 20%. Um, in New York, our, our transportation system is very, very carbon efficient. It may not always run on time when we want it to, but it's very, very carbon efficient compared to other cities uh, where uh, transportation will uh, play a much broader role, a much bigger piece of that pie. When you think about large, dense urban centers like New York City to begin with, and you just look at energy consumption overall, not carbon emissions, but energy, which is higher. So in New York, um, buildings consume 78% of the energy in our city. If you look nationally, buildings consume 40% of energy around the country. And then if you look out globally, uh, buildings consume about 30% 
of global energy around the world. So you can see we have a special challenge in New York because of our density, uh, because of our large urban-centric uh, area where we're consuming a lot of energy, producing a lot of carbon, and so we need to find the solutions to that, um, which uh, this bill has done and our process has done. What's been missing a little bit in this conversation is why are we doing this? We're doing it to mitigate the impact of climate change, that's for sure, and we know that. But there's a lot at stake from an economic risk standpoint that isn't quite being factored into the conversation yet. New York State has $3 trillion of insured coastal properties. $3 trillion. That's more than any other state in the country, and that's nearly twice the GDP of Canada. $3 trillion. That's what's at stake here from an economic risk perspective. And so we've had motivations from a policy perspective. This bill and this law has been meant to meet the 80 by 50 mandate, so that policy perspective has been clear. We have motivations from the environmental perspective that I'll show you in a moment, but there's been an economic motivation here that we need to clearly bring out and understand, and that is we have a lot at stake financially as a global coastal city. And climate change is no longer theory for us. Superstorm Sandy left a $20 billion bill in her wake. New York Harbor is up one foot in the last century. That's why these storms are causing the damage that they are and the risk that is out there at that $3 trillion that we have at sea level. And so we have a lot at stake, and we have a big environmental challenge in front of us. That's what motivated us to bring together our 80 by 50 buildings partnership to produce the blueprint for efficiency. And I see in the room here many, many members of the partnership that helped work with us over the course of the last two years. Our goal was to develop recommendations that could put buildings on path to meet the city's climate policies of an 80% 80 reduction by 2050, or a first down payment on this, which was a 40% reduction by 2030. And so we brought together 42 diverse organizations. They were religious organizations, builders, architects, engineers, labor unions, environmental groups, environmental justice groups, policy experts. Uh, 70 of them we brought together for 85 meetings over eight months to produce uh, the blueprint for efficiency. And we had two goals when we started out with this. We wanted whatever recommendations we came up with to be extraordinary for the environment and at the same time practical and pragmatic to implement so we could actually achieve the environmental savings that we were looking for. And we, we achieved breakthrough by kind of turning things on their head. Uh, we brought organizations together that had not sat down in the room before. And instead of discussing problems, we turned those problems into questions. And each time we worked through the questions, we found that we could find common ground and find um, recommendations on what we could do. And so the uh, Blueprint for Efficiency came out, 21 recommendations um, for uh, reducing carbon in New York City and putting buildings on path to reduce carbon emissions of 40% by 2030. Uh, we uh, uh, delivered the report in August. Um, and 
the first thing that you'll see is that our report was based on a building energy efficiency approach. The final bill was built, built on carbon, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the blueprint for efficiency called for a 20% reduction in energy use in large buildings, which we define as 25,000 square feet and above. That became the threshold for the law. We have a million buildings in New York City. If you draw the line at 25,000 square feet and above, you, you end up with 50,000 buildings. Those 50,000 buildings represent 60% of the floor area in the city and about 60% of the emissions. So that's where the 25,000 square feet and above um, uh, came out. And so the blueprint had 21 proposals, consensus proposals, really historic in the nature of the, of the stakeholders that were in the room. And um, Amy asked me to kind of compare and contrast, okay, what made it into the law, what didn't make it into the law. And so the items on the left-hand side here, and I'll talk about them in a little bit greater detail in a couple slides, did make it into the law. And so um, the, the concept of trading, uh, trading energy efficiency, the, the law actually talks about trading for carbon. I'll come back to that. Uh, but the, the idea of trading between uh, building owners to comply made it into the laws in, in, in the form of a study. Uh, green power offsets was one of our recommendations um, that made it into the law. I'll come back to that. And then um, a, uh, a uh, prescribed different approach for rent-stabilized buildings, um, as we had come uh, to consensus on in our report, made it into the law, too. Um, so we're, we're very proud of that. So what didn't make it into the law? Well, I would say the, the, the primary focus is we had proposed a, um, an approach that would reduce energy in buildings. The law that was passed is a law that reduces carbon. Both are two very legitimate ways to achieve the same result, but they, they trigger different mechanisms. Um, when you think about carbon, it brings in the whole grid into perspective um, and doesn't necessarily mean the gains are achieved through energy efficiency. So I would say those are, that's the, the two, um, the, the major difference from what the blueprint and the, and the law came out to be. Um, again, um, both very legitimate ways for thinking about the same issue. So how did the law end up? It ended up covering 25,000 square feet and above for buildings. Now, the interesting thing here on this, um, on this chart is when we think about big buildings in New York City, we typically think about the skyline here in Manhattan from a commercial property perspective. But what's um, surprising and actually needed with this bill is the focus in the large multifamily area because that's our number one source. Uh, the large multifamily housing outpaces commercial properties in New York City um, when you get to 25,000 square feet and above. And so this is going to be a law that's going to trigger actions that are needed across the city, not only in commercial properties, but also in residential properties as well. So what does the law do? It sets two caps uh, for reducing carbon emissions. Um, this is a, a kind of an illustrative chart that we put together, but if you think about the area in the red, those are buildings that have to move first. So those are the um, highest 20% emitting buildings in the city from a carbon perspective will have to take action in 2024 to lower their carbon emissions to that cap. Now, the cap is prescribed. It's a formula of carbon emissions per square foot by 10, build, 10 different building types. Um, and so you have to get below the line uh, from that cap perspective. And then in 2030, a second cap kicks in, which will cover 75% 
of the buildings, the covered buildings um, in New York City. And you can see that the projection is 25% of the buildings that we have already are energy efficient. These are newer ones or ones that have been uh, spending a lot of money on um, green building activity and, and energy efficiency um, that already meet the emissions limits. So those are the two caps that you can think about. Now, we're really proud that Urban Green um, worked hard to get four specific elements into the bill that we think will make this um, practical. There's no questions. These caps that I just showed you are very, very difficult. There, there's no easy way about this. These are really, really tough caps. Uh, building owners are going to have a really hard time. Um, I think what this reflects is um, climate change is a really tough issue, um, and the answers are tough too. Um, and um, so there's no question these caps are tough. Now, we worked really hard to put elements into the new law to make sure that we have a shot at achieving them through a practical and pragmatic approach. So the first is that the, um, the law calls for a study on carbon trading. We would like to reframe that a little bit and still think about the ability, can we trade carbon or can we trade energy efficiency? Um, can we reframe it as a climate efficiency approach um, to bring back into that energy efficiency uh, element? But the, the simple concept here of trading is um, there ought to be an incentive for building owners who get below the cap to keep going. You know, why should you just stop? If you have the capital and it makes sense, there ought to be incentive to keep going to drive down those reductions. If you do that, you ought to be able to monetize it and sell it to a building owner that's having a hard time meeting the cap. That's, a, that's the simple thing. Whether it's carbon, as the, as the bill uh, asks the uh, study to be about, or whether it's energy efficiency, you could do it through the same way. Um, it's important for three things. One is... Um, it, it provides great flexibility for building owners to meet the new law. Um, a lot of building owners, from a commercial property perspective in New York City, own a lot of portfolios. So in, in, in essence, what you do is you trade between yourself and you blend your average. Um, so you know that if you own a portfolio of 25 buildings, some are really good, some aren't so good. If you trade between yourself, you can meet the overall carbon a reduction goal. So that's that's one item. Secondly, we think this is a really interesting opportunity in how we can create an entire different source of capital for low to moderate income neighborhoods. Um, think about it this way. If we do the policy design right, we could provide um, extra credit for energy efficiency that happens or carbon reductions that happen to low to moderate income neighborhoods, maybe two to one, three to one, five to one credits. And so from a new business model standpoint, what you could think about is energy services companies or new businesses emerging to go into those neighborhoods and meet with those building owners and say, you know what, I'll change out your heating system. Maybe you'll pay me a little bit of money because you're going to lower your operating costs. Maybe you pay me nothing. I just want your credits to trade with the commercial property owners. So this could be an entirely new and creative way that we bring access to capital uh, to our low to moderate income neighborhoods from an energy efficiency carbon reduction standpoint. The third reason why carbon trading is important is this is one policy that is immediately exportable. doesn't matter what your political system is. doesn't matter what your climate is. doesn't matter what your building stock is. Climate trading can work in any city in the United States and around the world. I'll come back to that, why that's important. The second area that we got uh, in, into the bill that we think is very important is the flexibility to um, buy green power. 
So building owners have the ability to uh, reduce carbon emissions by doing energy efficiency or by offsetting their emissions by buying green power. This is important, I think, because we need a big, big market signal for renewable power in New York City. 70% of our grid is fossil fuel-based in New York. It's hard and it's expensive to move off of that. And so we need a big market signal and a big market pull to, for the investments that are required to green our grid, and we think this will be one of them. The third area that we got into the bill is a more feasible timeline. Um, the first um, action falls in in 2024, and then the, the big, biggest cap comes in in 2030. Um, that's important because you have to plan for capital cycles, you have to plan for tenant cycles, you have to build, actually stage the retrofits that are needed, and so we have ten and a half years to get ready for that, um, and th that timeline is important. And then lastly, we had recommended out of the blueprint and advisory board process, I'm quite certain, um, despite all the great work that was done on this bill and this law, I'm quite certain we haven't answered all the questions that need to be answered over the next ten years. And so there's an advisory board process in place to help refine the law and bring recommendations forward uh, throughout the course of that process. In a sense, we've just begun um, because now we have to develop the regulations to implement the law. A new office is going to be created at the Department of Buildings to help guide that. Um, the point of this timeline, I'm not going to read it all, is just to say is that there's a lot of work ahead. As much as there was a great amount of work that went into get the law to where we are today. There's so much more ahead um, in uh, making sure that it's implemented in a way um, that can be feasible um, and move forward. I'll just conclude with the, the thought on the exportable ideas. Uh, we have a tremendous responsibility as the largest city in this country and a metropolitan leader around the world to redo our part to reduce our carbon emissions. There's no question that we have to do our part. But after we spend the billions and billions of dollars to comply with this law, after we go through the disruption that we'll go through, if other cities don't lower their carbon emissions, New York Harbor is still going to flood. Because climate change is a global issue. So we have to do what we need to do in New York, and we've made a huge statement on what we're going to do. But we also have to do it in a way that can inform how other cities act. And that was a big part of how we approached the blueprint for efficiency in this law, and a big reason why that we wanted to make sure that there was the study on trading in this law. Because this is a breakthrough policy tool for cities around the world. And I can tell you from discussions we've already had with many cities around the world, they're looking to New York on how this could work. This will be a major focus area for Urban Green over the next year for how we can think about trading um, and how it can be a breakthrough policy tool, not only for New York, but for the rest of the world. So thank you very much for your attention today. Thank you for being here. Um, there's a lot to learn and a lot to unpack with this, uh, with this new law, so I want to thank Amy and the, and the groups here for pulling everybody together so we can learn from each other on it. Thank you very much.
want to confirm that Nick is here. We haven't had the, there you are, wonderful. Okay, we haven't had the chance to meet yet. Um, John, thank you for your insightful presentation and um, really, really wonderful and, and, and inspiring to think about how what we're doing in New York City could help influence what other cities around the world are doing so that we all really are doing our part to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we have a little bit of a change in schedule. Um, uh, unfortunately, Councilmember Constantinides was unable to attend due to a family emergency, but we are privileged to have here his legislative director, Nick Widzowski. Um, as we all know, the council member is chair of the Environmental Protection Committee and um, was the drafter and major driver behind Intro 1253, along with a number of other environmental bills. Um, and he and his team, including Nick, have shown a, a real um, uh, have shown incredible climate leadership and a real keen understanding of the role of uh, buildings in New York City's greenhouse gas emissions profiles, um, the opportunity for New York City to model emissions policies to other cities around the world and the need to listen to the voices of all New Yorkers, um, in particular those from frontline communities. Um, Nick works for the council members district, which is the 27, 22nd district, which includes uh, Astoria, Jackson Heights, Woodside, and East Elmhurst. Um, environmental policy has been a major focus of the council member and his team, including Nick. Um, in addition to 1253, um, the team um, worked to uh, unanimously pass um, the bill to reduce the city's carbon emissions 80% by 2050, which is sort of the, the high-level goal that we all uh, know by, by this point. It's uh, codified in local law of uh, 66 of 2014, and that was really thanks to Nick and the council member and his team. Um, the council member and his team have also sponsored additional legislation to encourage more use of solar, wind, geothermal, and biofuels. And uh, now we can add to um, their team's successes the uh, successful passage into law of Intro 1253, um, the first of its kind law in the nation requiring uh, building emissions reductions from all buildings in New York City uh, above 25,000 square feet. Thank you for joining us, Nick. I really appreciate you stepping in. Hey, good morning, everyone. Um, let me just give my you know, apologies that the uh, you know, councilman couldn't make it. Um, but you know, thank you for um, you know, having me in instead. I know, of course, many of you, we work together uh, throughout, uh, throughout this process, and I'm sure we'll be working together um, you know, now as we move into the uh, implementation phase. So let me also thank um, the New York City Bar Association for hosting this. And of course, let me also thank uh, Amy Turner, uh, New York City Climate Action Alliance, for putting this together. So in April 1896, uh, Swedish scientist Svante Arrhenius published his groundbreaking paper on the influence of carbonic acid in the air upon the temperature of the ground. Very, uh, it rolls off the tongue, I know. In it, he demonstrated that carbon dioxide is a key driver of atmospheric temperature and that adding or removing CO2 would have drastic effects on the climate of the entire planet. He wrote, I, sure, I certainly should not have undertaken these tedious calculations if an extraordinary interest had not been connected with them. Uh, yet that extraordinary interest to study CO2's impact on our planet has transformed into dire need. Uh, in the nearly 125 years since Arrhenius published his paper, 
the CO2 level in Earth's atmosphere has increased by 25% to a level higher than it's been in nearly a million years. The 10 hottest global years on record have all been since 1998, and no one under the age of 30 has experienced a month of below average climate. Our weather is shifting to become more extreme in the winter and more unbearable in the summer. Few considered the impacts of pumping carbon and other harmful materials in the air, changing the makeup of our planet. More than 100 New Yorkers die every year on average because of our notorious heat has become ungodly and unbearable. That fatal statistic will balloon into the thousands annually within the next 60 years. By the end of the century, without real action, our 80,000 asthma patients will seem paltry compared with what's coming. Climate change has caused an all-out public health threat for New York City. If we continue on a road to idleness or wait for the coal lobbyists in Washington to act, the choices for the future will be whittled down to something resembling either Mad Max or the Hunger Games. Although the challenge we face is unprecedented, it's not the first time we've faced the threat of widespread envir uh, environmental degradation. In the last year, as we uh, fought against uh, and argued greatly over this with many different interests, uh, you know, the councilman and I discussed uh, a great deal, you know, the, uh, the book that he was reading, I believe it was the recent um, biography published about uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Along with being a cr crusader against corruption, he was the godfather of American environmentalism, who sought to shift the paradigm of how we treated this beautiful land. Roosevelt summed up the status quo in stark terms. Here in the United States, we turn our rivers and streams into sewers and dumping grounds. We pollute the air, we destroy forests, and exterminate fishes, birds, and mammals. Not to speak of vulgarizing, charming landscapes with hideous advertisements. I say several blocks from Times Square, but no matter. <laughs> Sadly, there's another New Yorker in the White House today who thinks all of that is fine. He's mocked science, smeared climate change as a hoax, and rolls back generations of constructive regulations meant to spark innovations in clean energy. He claims to keep this country safe, yet plugs his ears when the Pentagon warns what violent weather can do to our national security. Indeed, we saw in Nebraska recently when I believe it was uh, Air Force Base uh, Offutt was, was flooded. Uh, and we saw over last Thanksgiving weekend, even though it took some searching, that the president's own national climate assessment warned of dire sea level rise even in the best case scenarios. By the end of the century, we could be looking at 100,000 climate refugees from the tri-state uh, region here. It took Sandy mercilessly ripping apart our shores for more people to wake up to the consequences of mistreating the one planet that we have. You know, that's why the last, uh, last month, you know, the city council, under the leadership of Speaker Corey Johnson, passed the Climate Mobilization Act. These bills combine to create the largest carbon emissions reduction ever mandated by any city anywhere. This is a down payment on a brighter, greener, safer future, one that reimagines how we use power or how we power New York City for the 21st century. And it couldn't come soon enough. Every report from the IPCC to New York City's own panel on climate change uh, calls for bold action that needs to take effect by 2030. Thanks to our action, 
the largest buildings emitting a disproportionate share of the carbon, as John just spoke about, uh, must make an aggregate 40% reduction by that time. That was our overall um, goal, that we needed to hit 40 by 30, and then obviously, as we spoke, 80 by 50 from these buildings. We will have created a clean, clean renewable energy market, a large share of which we should be able to generate here in the five boroughs. In the process, we'll also take in the first steps in closing the uh, gas-fired power plants that have for too long menaced over low-income and communities of color. The centerpiece of the Climate Mobilization Act is intro 1253C, and I think you actually just looked it up, you're right, it is now Local Law 97 of 2019, <laughs> which requires buildings 25,000 square feet and over to meet emissions targets, uh, some of which within the next five years. Under this bill, the worst 20% of buildings are required to meet that target based on the benchmarking data they've already provided to the city by January 1st of 2024. Then in 2030, all buildings at or under the 75th percentile for emissions will be required to retrofit as well. Uh, for this class, however, an advisory board will be empowered to take a hard look at the metric we've created. And again, I certainly defer to, uh, to John here as well. I think that we all know that uh, so much went into this bill that, you know, that even, even with everything that we did, it was just not possible to answer all the questions and we know that there are new questions will be subsequently asked that uh, we'll need you know, a greater degree of uh, experts to really look at. Um, this body of experts will determine, based on the experience of the first class, if a different approach works better. This new metric, however, must be at least as strict as the carbon metric, and it must get us to at least 40% reduction by 2030. This will apply to all buildings. We as a city can't put stringent requirements on the private sector and not be held to the same standard. Finally, we also have to assure that this does not uh, fall upon the most vulnerable. That's why rent-regulated senior affordable housing will have to follow a set of prescriptive requirements, such as installing individual temperature controls, heat sensors, insulating pipes and boilers, and upgrading their lighting. These requirements will not trigger rent hikes that risk only further destabilizing our neighborhoods. Parents should be able to put their children to bed without worrying that their homes will be taken from them by rising rents or by rising seas. Houses of worship will also be held to these prescriptive standards because while we must all, uh, all of our building sectors must contribute to meeting the 40 by 30 standards, we also know that we must be respectful to our city's prayer sanctuaries, many of which are also landmarked. Hospitals will be held to a specific standard that takes into account their unique energy needs and the role that they play in protecting the health and safety of New Yorkers. Again, all the carbon targets in this bill have been calculated based on data that they have already provided the city under Local Law 84 87. So all buildings, including hospitals, have been given standards to meet based roughly on where they are now. Of course, no two buildings are alike, and no two buildings will face the same path forward. That's why this bill also creates a new office, the Office of Building Energy and Emissions Performance, to oversee the implementation of these building standards, as well as to determine whether it may be appropriate to give uh, certain buildings an easier target to hit in a few specific instances. 
If a building owner is suffering a true financial hardship, or if they've made good faith efforts to buy green credits, only to find that there are none available on the market, for instance, the office will be empowered to consider granting that building an adjustment to their carbon target. If a building's landmark status precludes them from making certain changes to the building's facade or to the, to the structure itself, that can also be considered. Not-for-profit hospitals are also eligible for a reduced uh, percentage decrease. Finally, this bill created a study, again, as, as John uh, mentioned, and he went into great, um, excellent detail on that, to determine whether a cap-and-trade or a portfolio-based model can be used to make these targets easier for certain buildings. As part of this, the city will use its own buildings as kind of a test case uh, for a portfolio approach where individual buildings, city buildings, that is, under the cap can be credited to other city buildings also or above the cap. Um, in any case, however, we must be mindful of our environmental justice communities. We cannot create a situation where Fifth Avenue benefits on the backs of the people of the South Bronx or South Jamaica. Of course, money always becomes a question with something of this magnitude. That's why the council also created the New York City Prop Property Assessed Clean Energy or PACE program. Uh, with this program, property owners eligible for loans with little to no, or will be eligible for loans, excuse me, with little to no upfront costs structured so that they are able to be paid off over the life of the green technology they help finance. This way, the debt service is generally limited to the amount you end up saving from reduced energy costs. Not only has this program worked in other cities like Chicago, but it's also already been used in towns and cities across New York State. Um, the Climate Mobilization Act also includes two other bills to help spur green energy adoption. You know, we've made it easier to build large wind turbines in New York City. You know, wind energy doesn't create cancer, as some have suggested. Uh, it creates jobs and clean power. And we've directed the city to, within two years, study which of our gas-fired power plants could be replaced with wind or solar energy. We are at a crossroads. At this point, we all know humanity's role in the changing climate and the effect that it has had over all aspects of our existence. We will feel the impacts of stronger hurricanes and increased precipitation, and we will slog through longer allergy seasons and sunny day flooding. We will endure ferocious and life-threatening heat waves, possible disruption in our food supply due to drought, and potentially catastrophic sea level rise. And worst of all, we may see these horrors unfold very rapidly over the next decade as our civilization has pumped more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere in the last 30 years than in all previous years since the advent of the Industrial Revolution. In short, much of the world into which we were born and we thought we knew is lost and we are entering a new and less stable climate than any human being has ever known. Let's be clear, no one bill or package of bills can reverse this single-handedly, and no city, even one with as much wealth and influence as New York, can stem this rising tide alone. Humanity is collectively implicated in this crisis, and humanity must stand together to combat it. We have, however, an opportunity that no other city has ever had coming forth at a moment like this. You know, no city anywhere has put forth a pack, uh, policy, a package of bills 
um, like this to achieve such a dramatic reduction in emissions. No one anywhere in the world has set a hard carbon target for their buildings the way that we are. This is, in other words, the biggest concrete step that we have taken towards making the aspirations of the Paris Climate Accords, 80 by 50, and the Green New Deal truly real. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Oh, yeah, thank you, Nick, um, for sharing the council member and your team's vision for a, a cleaner, greener, and more equi equitable New York City that seeks to do its share um, to help to help reduce our, our share of global greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we're also delighted to have with us this morning John Lee of the New York City Mayor's Office of Sustainability. Uh, intro 1253, or Local Law 97, was a considerable effort, and John and the mayor's office played a critical role in developing the new law and in mapping out how to achieve emissions reductions from New York City's buildings. The mayor's office, um, along with the Department of Buildings, will also be primarily responsible for implementing Intro 1253, and we are glad to have the opportunity to learn from John. John is the Deputy Director for Green Buildings and Energy Efficiency at New York City Mayor's Office of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability. In this capacity, he's leading the city's policy and legislative efforts driving the built environment unprecedented energy efficiency standards. John's previous public sector service was with the Department of Buildings as senior architect in the Codes Development Division uh, and with the Department of City Planning where he served as an urban designer. Uh, during his early career, John was an art director for an IT consulting firm, and he was also a design architect in private sector architecture firms across a portfolio of institutional buildings, transit facilities, and master plans for universities. Um, he's a New York State licensed architect, and thank you, John, for joining us this morning. We really look forward to hearing your remarks. Thank you for the introduction. This one works, yes. And uh, thank you to the Bar Association for inviting us. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. I've never been in this uh, building before, let alone this room. It's quite magnificent. Uh, makes me think maybe I should have gone to law school like my mom told me to instead of going to architecture school. But whatever case, I'm here now, right? So uh, look at me now, Mom. Um, I had prepared some remarks, and uh, John Mandike and Nick Wazowski covered largely uh, what, uh, I would it's maybe 75% of that, that what I had prepared, so, um, you know, take that and throw it out. Um, and uh, I think they had a, a, in rich detail, talked a lot about of how we got to uh, where we are today, and uh, rather than belabor that uh, and be repetitive, um, maybe if I could shift my remarks a little bit towards uh, where we ought to be going, and if you could uh, forgive me as we, you know, march through these slides um, that I prepared talking about a little bit about where we're coming from. But, uh, you know, I also have the great pleasure of living in this town. This is the greatest city in the world. Um, I'm not originally from here. Um, my family immigrated into one of the uh, flyover states um, out west. 
And uh, I always knew that I wanted to come live here eventually, and it's with even greater pleasure that I get to work for the great city of New York. Uh, there is such a concentration of uh, progressive, progressivism, uh, forward-thinking, uh, uh, science-based, evidence-based intellectualism that happens here, and a confluence of people that actually care about each other and want to do something that is right for one another. And this is something that you don't see in many places. We tend to be uh, sort of sheltered into what we, um, well, uh, into our, our own little bubbles here. And here in New York City, you know, we also tend to put a shelter on ourselves, thinking that we're, no one else is better than, uh, than we are. But we also do have a responsibility to the world to set the tone and set the example for the way that th uh, things ought to be done. We've also, in the past, as New Yorkers, and now, um, even though I wasn't born here, well, uh, uh, proudly, categorize myself in that, uh, that history of New Yorkers that we've also shown the wrong way of, uh, that things ought to be done. Um, but that's because we have that largesse as the greatest city in the world, that to set the tone of the way that things ought to be. And here, um, we ha came with a moral underpinning that what we are doing is right. And the science shows us that we have to do something about the carbon emissions now. We spend a lot of time getting through, um, going through the, the, the evidence of where the uh, emissions attribution are, and what we come down to is around uh, what happens in buildings. Um, this is the sort of statistics that, statistics that we've seen before. And uh, buildings is it. And this is not a new message. This has been something that has been stated uh, for many, many years now, especially since the time that we began doing carbon accounting, that buildings is it. And so now we've set forth this law that um, explicitly states that we must reduce emissions that come from buildings. And it is disruptive, as was mentioned earlier today. It is going to be uh, very, very, very costly. Uh, there's no question about that in anyone's mind. I mean, the, uh, um, on this, uh, the carbon uh, emissions uh, legislation alone, there's a, at least a near-term expectation that we are looking in the uh, billions of dollars category. And this is particularly what makes it difficult or uncomfortable for us, because what we are talking about is a massive shift of wealth. We have been able to profit handsomely off of the back of carbon for hundreds of years and have never, ever, ever, ever paid the consequences for that until it becomes happening now. As John Mandike mentioned earlier, some $3 trillion of real estate is at stake on just our shorelines, and that is just the very tip of the iceberg of the large, very large pie here that is at stake. And it's not that it will be um, utterly decimated at the end of the day, but it will change if we don't do anything about it. The world, as we know, will shift in ways that we have, um, we're not able to uh, properly anticipate. Uh, wealth is going to be transferred um, from, one, uh, from party to other parties, and there will ultimately be winners and losers in this. And, part, and this is to mitigate that outcome that we're um, trying to hedge against a utterly disruptive future for which we have no means of getting to versus uh, uh, getting to a place where we can plan our way out of a worse situation. That's the underpinning behind this. And again, it is not going to be easy, and there are certain steps that we can take towards that. And with that comes this emissions uh, reduction mandate. And it is not convenient, uh, to, to invoke the words of the former Vice President Al Gore about the, this title about the inconvenient truth. It is particularly inconvenient in terms of timing. I mean, we are effectively running out of time to be able to do something about it. And we set certain goals out that look, project out 10, 20, 30, 40 years, because that's really all that we have left. And that's very, frankly, not a lot, not a lot of time to do something 
particularly when we think about buildings and the capital planning cycles for buildings and the investments that we kind of make and the leases and all that. Um, uh, I think w one thing that was um, uh, not particularly mentioned that the Climate Mobilization Act uh, was encompassing uh, a number of bills. Uh, first was, um, you know, the, do want to mention the requirement for green or solar PV production. And this is a, 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 um, a, a law that will affect uh, new construction, particularly around um, uh, effect, uh, more efficient or uh, productive utilization of our rooftop spaces. Uh, there is also the, the amendment to the energy grade requirement. Uh, this will uh, make for a, a, a fairer distribution of the energy grade efficiency grade as to be posted on uh, the front doors of large buildings beginning in 2020. And as was earlier mentioned, was the uh, legislation that enables property that says clean energy financing. There should be another financial mechanism that should make these sort of investments into our uh, uh, energy and emissions improvements to buildings. Uh, more effective, but let's get to what this is, which is around the uh, reduction of the greenhouse gas emissions from buildings. And this is um, similar to a chart that John Mandak showed a little bit earlier. This is just flipping it on the side where we have on the y-axis the, the, the intensity of greenhouse gas emissions and sort of the distribution of all the buildings looking at the various um, use types. So if we look at uh, particularly multifamily buildings, what this effectively does is, you know, these worst emitters, they have to chop off that top of it and effectively get below the line. And as was mentioned earlier, this emissions target becomes um, uh, much more stringent over time. And this dial line keeps scratching down, down, down over time as we get towards 80%, which for all practical purposes is practically zero. We have the kinds of things that we have to, have to, um, to in order to enable the, the change in the economy and the change in our emissions profiles are not gonna be had by piecemeal incremental um, reductions here. We have to have wholesale changes and by, uh, by effectively putting something in place that says 80%, we might as well be going all the way there. But um, this puts into sort of a, a graphic illustration of kind of who is affected and how much they would be affected. And we could see that there are some worse emitters that have to make much greater uh, emissions reductions in order to hit this target, which sets then there is this, uh, uh, for these properties that are effectively operating above the line, if they do nothing else between now and 2030 to change their emissions profile, that portion of emissions that is above that line for that individual given property is subject to penalties, and the penalty was set at um, in the law at $268 uh, per ton of emissions or, or, or the target. Uh, that, that number wasn't uh, arbitrarily drawn. As was mentioned before, uh, there's some estimated um, three to four billion dollars of construction activity that we can expect to be induced in order to make the right kind of retrofits in our buildings in order to meet these sort of very low emissions reductions, which comes as a result of efficiency and investments in renewable energy. And so that $268 per metric ton came at a, a, a parity with the cost of doing something to your building to reach the compliance levels necessary uh, under this law. What this also does is it sets us up for this carbon trading marketplace that was mentioned um, um, multiple times this morning already. Uh, this is one portion of the law that has not been uh, 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 fully iterated except to say that the mayor's office must undertake a study and uh, have an implementation plan for an actual marketplace to be active uh, before uh, 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 this um, uh, mayor term is, is over. And 
here again, then we can see graphically illustrated what uh, the potential for this carbon trading marketplace. And if we look at $268 per ton being sort of the, the, the commodity price in a sense, and that's a baseline from which we can begin thinking of how the, how the price carbon within this sort of demand side marketplace for uh, carbon credits. And you can see here then there are obviously as uh, individual properties may move up and uh, above or below this line and they, they have uh, the potential to have uh, credits to be able to be sold or uh, bought uh, within that market. So this is a, a great potential for us in terms of then getting at the net uh, 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 equitable distribution of our carbon responsibility because as it is right now we are all sort of equally uh, holding that uh, bearing that responsibility and the way that the law was set was such that each one of us would eventually have to bear our own capacity for what the emissions is and the, the means by doing this was to set an emissions cap on this. But then what this, does this mean for uh, individual buildings? Um, there is a little bit of an exercise to be had here is understanding what the emissions profile of the building is today. Uh, we will, um, through our uh, t uh, online tools such as the benchmarking visualization here, uh, we've been able to en enable this so that one could readily read uh, the, the, bu the building's present emissions compared to where it needs to be to give a sense of scale of where that building needs to go on an individual basis, which is a little bit different from what we expect from citywide operations, which is an overall 40% reduction by 25 and 50% by 2030, which is much more aggressive than the standard being held for, uh, for private sector buildings, but then it is incumbent on the, uh, the city to be able to, uh, and the state to be able to provide the resources uh, to enable uh, these kind of retrofits. We have been able to run the retrofit accelerator and community retrofit programs for the past three years uh, 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 to meet our uh, uh, program goals, which were set on of uh, understanding that there will be a voluntary uptake of this um, based on a financial consideration that it makes sense to make these kind of investments into the buildings. Um, there, uh, uh, marginally, there is an operational improvement um, that uh, that is attractive enough compared to the very, 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 very low cost of fossil fuel energy inputs today that does make a business case. But even through these successful programs, we have not seen the uptake and the aggressive level of uh, efficiency improvements and emissions reductions that we need to see in buildings in order to get to these targets. Which again, the targets were not necessarily set by what may or may not be practically achievable for any uh, given building, but what is necessary for us to get to uh, 80 by 50 outcome. Uh, is it possible? It is absolutely possible. And we have seen evidence of this in cities worldwide and we in uh, the United States have uh, a certain uh, stubbornness of being able to make progress on this front. And there are certain um, uh, pressures that come up, uh, from us from the federal level, while more recently at the state level, we have, have uh, received a, a great deal of support and state level commitments towards renewable energy that will get us towards this emissions reduction objective. Um, through our efficiency programs, I mean, it is about reaching out and building community and then expressing what are the sort of everyday efficiency improvements that one could make versus the actual high performance and long-term holistic integrated retrofits that we need to see happen. And this is probably where it is most fundamentally sort of disruptive to real estate as we know it today. That typically real estate is not, except for certain of uh, you know, you know, the sort of long-term holders, does not typically think in 10, 15, 20-year capital planning horizons. There's a oftentimes three to five year uh, horizon on this and the, the short term profit motivation on this is uh, uh, 
that does not work well with uh, the long-term uh, greenhouse gas emissions reductions objectives that we have here. So part of this is um, then an expansion of the retrofit accelerator outreach and assistance programs to get to property owners, to help them understand what the, pro the opportunities are within their buildings. And you can expect to see that the mayor's office is going to roll out an expansion of the, uh, the accelerator program in the next couple months here. We're again, again focusing on a, a much larger cohort of buildings that are larger than 25,000 square feet, and especially since there's the force of law now to do something about it, the engagement suddenly changes in what we talk about with them. We will also be continuing our small buildings and uh, target neighborhoods program, looking at Upper Manhattan and the South Bronx, in addition to the program we uh, ran through uh, Central Brooklyn area. We'll be looking at new construction and uh, moving the industry towards readiness of the advanced codes that will fully take effect in 2025, in which uh, high, uh, high efficiency, low emissions, low energy uh, performance of buildings will be the code requirement. And this focus on the high-performance retrofit track. Again, this is about getting the buildings to fundamentally transform the, themselves, uh, the, the buildings into uh, what we need to envision for the, the future. And to do this is to also provide the necessary tools. We have the energy audit requirement that is already imposed on large buildings. Again, like many things that are uh, intertwined with the, uh, the, the short-term uh, so short-term uh, planning that is typical of uh, real estate operations. This is forcing the question looking much more beyond to 10, 15-year investments. What kind of uh, sequencing needs to happen in order to reach the low emissions and low energy profiles for buildings and shifting towards renewable uh, construction, I mean, re renewable energy sources. So what does this actually mean in the end when we're talking about what can actually happen in buildings? And we've talked a lot about improvements to existing uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems. Um, th there's a law that's coming into full effect by 2025 that will require all um, the, uh, the, these large buildings to have their lighting upgraded to current energy code standards, which means that we'll uh, see the days of incandescence fully um, uh, out of our buildings and uh, we'll be uh, with high efficiency, LED, all across the board. But these are incremental improvements. Again, this is sort of like low-hanging fruit that, that tends to be um, uh, incremental improvements at incremental cost. And this has sort of eked this out along and allowed us also to make incremental reductions in our greenhouse gas uh, uh, emissions overall. We see in our history of the benchmark buildings, there was an overall uh, uh, improvement in performance of something to the level of 6% without any other uh, external factor here. And while that is something to, to cite, that is clearly not enough to get us to this 80%. And then there's also this sort of mentality of where we uh, bootstrap or bandage our existing systems, and we continue to do that decades over decades, and we still live with these lousy, oil-fired, steam heating systems in most of our buildings. And everyone here in this room hates them, and yet we have been handicapped to do anything about them. And we have to fundamentally think about what we do about that. I mean, that is the core of the uh, emissions um, in New York City. This is something that we've uh, uh, vocalized um, uh, actively by the mayor's office, by, our, by accelerator programs, that while there is a fossil fuel component to it, we're also talking about antiquated systems. I mean, some, many buildings, these could be 100-year-old systems, and it is, there is an inherent inefficiency to it about making a giant fire in the box in the basement of the building and then distributing it across uh, to, uh, to point sources all across the building. 
And the, with all the line losses and then the, the actual endpoint losses as well, there are better ways to go about doing this. And in addition to what happens internal, we also have to think about the external part of the building. And so we're not necessarily advocating for uh, reskinning every building that is out there, but there are buildings that were constructed uh, where energy consideration was never put, come into play. And these kinds of uh, aesthetics, while they, they may serve one function and they may be saleable, they do not get us towards our greenhouse gas emissions objectives. Does it mean that we have to totally rethink the way that our buildings look? Not necessarily. I mean, there are certain uh, simple things like air sealing, which actually gets a lot of mileage before coming in and tearing up the building and adding exterior insulation. But we have to seriously take these into consideration. And then you have heard from our office and also from the state, uh, which uh, the, under terms like beneficial electrification, what we're actually talking about, conversion away from fossil fuel sources, combustion within our buildings, and moving towards uh, a high efficiency electrical based system, heat pumps for example, that do draw upon renewable sources. But this means that we do have to actually make active investments into clean carbon free power. This is mentioned as part of a, a mechanism to meet the emissions mandate as in uh, Local Law 97 now. And this means procurement of uh, clean carbon free power from uh, sources outside of New York City that feed directly into, this, into the five boroughs. Uh, this is a key nuance of the bill, uh, or now law, that, uh, that I think uh, should be emphasized here. But we are looking for actual transmission coming into the five boroughs in order to fulfill our uh, carbon-free power needs in order to displace uh, our in-city gas-fired generation. And we need the entire building com community to become subscribers to uh, carbon-free power in order to enable the market. And the expectation is that this law, in addition to pushing uh, better efficiency, better um, uh, lower carbon emissions from buildings ha to be um, had from improvements to the buildings and also from the procurement of carbon-free power. But there's also there are theoretical limits to how much we can do to the building itself. And ultimately it comes to what we do in our buildings. And we, there's a large expectation of improvements to the operations and maintenance of every single building out there. And the city will be offering training towards this end and NYSERDA, the state and the utilities are offering additional incentives towards the infrastructure and the, the smart buildings initiatives and IT necessary in order to have us operate these sophisticated machines in the best way that is possible. And then at the end of the day, it all comes down to the tenants and us, all of us that occupy these buildings and the way that we use the buildings. And it does require a fundamental rethinking of what we consider efficient and how we utilize energy in, in, in our buildings. And, just, and what that means is how we consume energy in our day-to-day -day lives. At the um, building operating level, this means then we are thinking about new ways of looking at the lease structure. Again, this is the disruptive to the real estate industry. We have talked a lot about green leases in the past and the sharing of responsibility, or at least the visibility of um, energy and emissions within the, um, uh, the, between the tenant and the owner. And through programs like the Carbon Challenge, we've put out pilots to, to test the viability of this. And it is possible to have profitable relationships in here that do engage both the owner and tenant to bear this responsibility collectively because we all have to do it collectively if we are to meet the emissions reductions mandate that was set forth. So with that, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, bearing with my mostly ad lib here. I hope though I did uh, 
uh, hone in on the point about that it is about the right kind of investments that we need to make in the buildings. And then, as was said before, we haven't fully figured out every aspect of it, but the charge has been set that we have to reduce emissions, that the path forward is visible, and it is taking a collective effort here to make sure that we do this right. So thank you again very much. It's a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, hello, thanks so much for being here. I'm going to uh, call up the panelists for our first panel uh, this morning still. And uh, my name is Alexis Seba. I'm an attorney at the environmental law firm Sive, Paget and Brazil. Yeah, oh yeah, sorry. You guys can all uh, join me up here on this regal uh, podium. This is just a distraction for you as you make your way up here. like a judge now, I'm not a lawyer. Hopefully we won't need a gavel, so behave. Okay, go behave. Uh, great. So this is the um, panel entitled Building Consensus on Building Emissions, Bringing the Right Voices to the Table. Uh, we have uh, three excellent panelists with us to talk about um, the rent-regulated buildings aspect of the building emissions law. Rent-regulated buildings can either meet the emissions limits that have been primarily discussed today, or they can enact uh, energy conservation measures. So there's a, a slightly different potential framework for rent-regulated buildings. And we have uh, some excellent panelists here to talk to us about how the rent-regulated buildings aspect of the building emissions law uh, was negotiated and what are some unknowns as we move forward with this aspect of the law. So Pete Sikora is the Climate and Inequality Campaigns Director for New York Communities for Change, which is a community-based organization fighting for economic, social, and climate justice. New York Communities for Change played a central role in animating activists to pass the city's new law. Next to him, we have Jared Rodriguez, who is an Associate Director at Realty Operations Group which is a shared services organization focused on expanding and managing the residential and commercial real estate and energy portfolio of the LaFranc organization. We also have Cecil Corbin Mark, who is the deputy director and director of policy initiatives for We Act for Environmental Justice, which seeks to build healthy communities by ensuring that people of color and low-income residents participate meaningfully in the creation of sound and fair environmental policies and practices. So welcome to our panelists. Thanks. So just for your reference, if you haven't used these before, you push the button that yep. says push if you want to talk. So uh, just 
to quickly to get some groundwork here, we'll go uh, Pete, then Jared, then Cecil, as you're organized. Uh, if you can just tell us a bit about your um, group's involvement in negotiating the, the law and what were the, your primary interests and, and concerns uh, that you were kind of advocating for. Sure. Uh, so um, New York Communities for Change is a economic, racial, and climate justice organization. Uh, we organize in black and Latino communities primarily. Uh, very aggressive about the politics. We organized a lot of activists to push forward this kind of legislation. So we were involved throwing rocks at the system to get it to move and also in the drafting process as well as in uh, the, uh, the, the 80 by 50 partnership that uh, John went through. So, um, you know, we played, a, we did a lot of work on this, a lot of work, a lot of protests, a lot of lobbying, reports, media work, all the things you do to get the city government to move forward. And I, I do want to say, in all seriousness, this is monumental. If you're not terrified yet by what some of the other people have said about the effects of climate change or you haven't really thought this through, um, it's a horror show. Um, New York City will not exist if this problem is not resolved. And radical, extraordinarily fast cuts need to be imposed worldwide right now or that future is extremely bleak. Think of it this way, another way. Um, there are already climate migration issues. Um, a million people migrating from Syria into Europe has triggered an almost fascistic backlash in many of those countries. Well, think what will happen when tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people are on the move because where they live is no longer habitable. You can't survive outside anymore for more than a couple hours because the wet bulb temperature is too high uh, for much of the year. So it, this, is an, this, is, this is really very scary stuff. So from our perspective, we wanted to fight for the deepest cuts as fast as possible to hit at a minimum that 40 by 30, 80 by 50 speed that the UN scientists tell us gives humanity a 50-50 chance of avoiding worldwide apocalypse. So, you know, that's not that fast, really, right? But it's at a minimum what needs to be done. Um, the second objective was to make sure that good green jobs were maximized. That's a huge benefit of this legislation because um, the more cuts there are, the more jobs there are. And then third, we wanted to make sure that affordable housing, in particular rent-regulated housing, did not see rent hikes as a result of this. So that's what this panel is about. A lot of what happened in this fight was adversarial, um, but in this case, the interests really kind of came together around a framework for what ought to be done around rent-regulated housing. So let me frame it by saying, um, this is all prearranged, by the way, I'm yakking on here, but we've sort of come up with a framework for how we'll go through this. But um, the uh, rent regulation is controlled at the state level. The rent laws are gonna expire in June, um, so there's a huge fight in Albany right now about what that will look like. Rent levels being set that way means that the, uh, a big way that landlords raise rents permanently is through major capital improvements, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a large capital improvement for the building. The costs of that can be passed along as a permanent rent hike. So if the city imposed requirements that would lead to MCIs, that is major capital improvements, under the way that state law functions, landlords would be able to charge the entire costs permanently as permanent rent hikes 
through MCIs. There are two million people living in rent-regulated housing. In this city, we have about 65,000 homeless people, 30,000 kids in shelters any given night. Almost half of tenants who are renting pay almost half of their income. So we have a housing affordability crisis. So in this situation, while rent-regulated buildings are a big source of emissions, we did not believe that it made sense to impose mass rent hikes uh, in order to trigger uh, cuts in pollution. So instead, the framework in the law is a set of very specific prescriptive requirements that do not trigger MCIs, because they're not MCIs, they're not major capital improvements, but they do produce energy efficiency gains. So the overall law for almost all the buildings takes the approach of leaving to building owners the decisions of how to cut their own energy use and meet these metrics. But on rent regulation, it's very specific to things that do not cause MCIs. What all of us are looking forward to is state law changing and enabling the city to simply amend this legislation so that rent-regulated buildings are treated the same way as others, because the fairness problem around MCIs is resolved at the end of this session, along with other problems. So um, that's a quick introduction to the issue. Um, and I do want to also say that while we threw a lot of rocks at the mayor and at the council and at individual people here, um, this law is transformative and incredible. And so Mayor de Blasio really deserves credit here, but really the council, the councilman Constantinides, the speaker, a cohort of council members who pushed very hard internally deserve enormous credit for passing the world's first law. It should terrify you. No one in the world has done this other than New York City. We need to make this thing work, happen, and it's got to happen worldwide. So there's so much to discuss. <laughs> um, first, I think I, I would like to note, though, you know, you mentioned Syria into Europe, mm -hmm. right? But we, we have a crisis at our southern border yep. now because the entire equatorial zone on Earth is destabilizing. Um, so we need to consider that. We also need to consider how migration impacts affordability. Um, you know, this city has experienced mass migration over the past almost two decades. You know, we've grown significantly because of international migration and also domestic migration. Uh, and the result of that was, you know, very increased rents. Um, so, you know, we, we do have to consider those things in the context of global destabilization, which we are now at the beginning of. Um, and we have to think about it in the context of national, state, and local politics. Uh, so I think that's extremely important to always have that in mind. Um, my, my focus inside the uh, rent-stabilized portfolio that the LEFRAC organization owns um, has been, I, I have to be honest, just very bottom-line bottom driven, right? I don't get involved on the rent side. I get involved on the operation side um, and reducing op operating expenses for, for these buildings. Um, we do have uh, commercial buildings, and we have mostly rent-stabilized buildings. So we are a rent-stabilized building manager, mainly. Um, over 100 buildings in the boroughs, uh, mostly Brooklyn and Queens, um, that serves populations that these folks are advocating for. Uh, so, so we came into the process with Urban Green Council um, very early, understanding that the MCI issue was sort of first and foremost. That was the issue that we had to get over. Um, and then could we figure out alternative compliance pathways? And so the idea that we could potentially impose this prescriptive list um, that would be reasonable on the rent-stabilized housing stock uh, was something I think that emerged fairly early, um, just given 
you know, my personal experience with uh, sort of easy measures to implement uh, in multifamily buildings that were effective. So like biggest bang for your buck. Um, and so one of the things that's included in the prescriptive list is insulating behind your radiators, right? Most buildings post-World War II in New York, these are six-story brick masonry buildings in the boroughs. You know what they look like. You know, they're in Kew Gardens. They're in Corona, Queens. Uh, they're throughout Brooklyn. Um, they have radiators that are inset in the wall, actually buried in the wall under windows. Uh, and there is one to two courses of brick separating that radiator from the outside. So if you were to go with a thermoimaging camera during the winter and take a picture of a building, you would see bright red hot spots under every single window because there's no insulation and radiators are free to uh, send heat into the brick and then the brick is free to send heat into the atmosphere. Um, so that is not acceptable. That's just not acceptable. It is the, in my mind, the most egregious design flaw of buildings that were built uh, post-World War II in New York. So we have to, we have to remedy that situation. And I, I believe that that prescriptive measure, uh, measure that's included in the law um, will help us get there. Uh, the other thing I, I think it's important to understand is that prescriptive measures are a compliance pathway. Um, and there are other compliance pathways. And one of them is hitting the emissions target. So I'm, a, I'm actually proud to say that a good deal of our buildings will actually hit the emissions targets in 2030. And so we, won't, <laughs> so we won't have to necessarily do all prescriptive measures, including what I think is the biggest hurdle, um, adding controls at every terminal unit or at every radiator. There, there is difficulty in that, uh, and there's significant expense associated with that. So if a landlord can do all other measures, you know, prior to, I believe, 2025, uh, decide to hit the carbon metric instead of the prescriptive measures metric, um, they may actually save money. Uh, so at least with our buildings, and, and I, always, I always like to add the caveat, like we're not the perfect example of a rent-stabilized building owner. Like we have a lot of buildings, we have a, an infrastructure of people, um, we have money uh, that we can make these investments. Right, so we're we're not what a typical rent stabilized building owner looks like. Um, they're usually mom and pop, so that that's a situation I think that you know we kind of have to overcome. Um, pace financing is a is a way to begin that dialogue, uh, but we'll see with I think the number of um, applications for like like grievances, um, we'll see you know what the impact is on on smaller building owners. Good morning. You can say good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, thanks. Um, <clears throat> I wanna thank uh, the Bar Association and uh, all the people that were responsible for pulling this together. I, uh, as you heard, represent We Act for Environmental Justice. We are a 31-year-old environmental justice organization that organizes communities in northern Manhattan. Um, 
the question was basically, you know, how did we get involved and what were we really working on with regards to this uh, particular bill? Um, the how we got involved really stems from previous engagement with a prior administration. Our organization worked in incredibly hard and for a very long time with a number of advocates across the city uh, to really focus on the clean heat program that then uh, Mayor Bloomberg and his administration sort of brought forth. And underneath that uh, effort and that initiative, we were really also very focused on some of the very same issues that drive us to be a part of this process today. And that is a large percentage of our organization's members, we are a membership organization, and we have uh, almost 800 uh, dues-paying members who live in northern Manhattan. About 100 to 150 of them show up every month at a monthly membership meeting that we have. And one of the driving things that they always say to us is, what are you doing to deal with gentrification? And for a long time, you know, it's like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. You know, we work on environmental and environmental health issues. How do we fix gentrification? And the more we engaged around the issue of uh, buildings and the climate crisis that it is fueling, and especially in New York City, we began to realize that there was a pathway for us to say to our members that these are the things that fit within the wheelhouse of our mission as an organization that can really help us tackle the question of gentrification in northern Manhattan. So issues of what fuels were our buildings burning tied not only to the issue of carbon emissions into the air and thus the climate crisis, but they also tied very directly to the health of the residents that lived in the buildings that were our members. And so we could begin to make those kinds of connections for people around why indeed we were uh, starting to work on these things and how it indeed helped with the issue of gentrification. Um, in that fight, I think we were a very clear and clarion voice with the Bloomberg administration that as you proceed with these kinds of uh, improvements in terms of buildings, we have to be really clear about the potential impact for the tenants who in many instances are sometimes hanging on by a thread financially to remain in their homes um, because of rent increases. And so we were very clear with the Bloomberg administration that our sign off on something like this really meant that you had to work very directly with small landlords. You had to find financing for them to do uh, the boiler upgrades that would be mandated under a clean heat program. And it's only until those things were put in place and that there uh, were actual sort of uh, resources for organizations uh, to go out into the communities to work with landlords, to help them understand about the various programs that were out there, and to work with residents and tenants to actually help them understand that they should be calling for these boiler conversions, but only if they were done in a way that would help uh, minimize the possibilities of rent increases. And um, so we got involved with uh, uh, Bloomberg and his administration's clean heat program. Uh, then the Bloomberg administration started talking about a program like this one. And, 
you know, at, uh, at the same time, we continue to raise many of the same concerns. Um, and the Bloomberg administration, for a variety of different reasons, decided that they were going to uh, listen to the landlord lobby and not listen to uh, the environmental or environmental justice community, that we could find a pathway towards doing some of these things. But all of these voices had to be brought to the table, and all of their concerns had to be sort of addressed, at least in a way that we could all feel safe moving forward with this. Um, at the same time, we also, uh, at the, at the, in that time, we're talking to uh, people at DHCR, Division of Housing and Community Renewal, as it was called at that particular point in time, at the state level about the MCI regulations, major capital improvements, that those things needed to be improved because we were recognizing that landlords were using this as a tool. And I don't, when I say this, I, I hope you don't walk out of the room thinking that all, well, I think that all landlords are bad. There are definitely certain landlords in this city that I personally believe should be put in jail for the criminal activity that they engage in. And that, however, does not jade me or allow me to not recognize that there are many landlords of different stripes all across the city who work hard to make sure that their properties are kept up, who do the right thing, and are in, indeed doing uh, many of us who rent from them a service. Uh, that said, um, I know that the laws are uh, at the state level in such a way that it allows for uh, the kinds of challenge that a lot of members in our communities face, and we need to fix that, and a number of us are working on those things. And so that brings me forward to um, working on uh, 1253. Uh, Bless you. I definitely have to uh, second the leadership of, of uh, Chairman Costa Constantinides I, and his uh, team member, Nick, who's here today. Um, you know, I think that folks at this point in time realized that the discussion could not be driven purely and solely by what the landlord real estate interest lobby says needed to be the, the way in which we proceeded. And I felt uh, the the opening for uh, advocates like myself and, and New York Communities for Change and, and other uh, fair-minded folks to, to come together and, and help us produce a solution that I think is uh, very represented in what you see in Intro 1253. Uh, like many others, uh, we were squarely focused on not only achieving energy efficiency, making sure that we weren't necessarily leaving uh, communities like Central Harlem or West Harlem or East Harlem, El Barrio, or Washington Heights inward behind, but making sure that as we move forward with them that we could move forward in a way that protected the residents from not being at the mercy of some of the more unscrupulous landlords in this city. Um, we, we have to make sure that um, we are both doing the things that are necessary to reduce buildings' emissions, but it can't be solely a conversation about what we do with buildings' emissions, right? That uh, is not something that exists within a vacuum. People live in those buildings, and the cost that falls on them is incredibly uh, important to their ability to, to put shelter over their, their families and to provide a place uh, that they call home. And so we carried those uh, uh, thoughts into this particular conversation as we tried to work with, uh, and here I want to commend uh, the folks at Urban Green Council in pulling together the 80 by 50 uh, task force 
Um, we wanted to make sure that uh, our voices, the communities that we w organized with were heard, um, but we also know that we had to learn and hear from uh, others in the real estate industry um, and others in government as well. And so we are, you know, we have some, still have some disagreements with things in the bill. Like I will clearly tell you that I am not a fan of carbon trading. I, um, I have real concerns about it in terms of the way, for example, certain carbon trading markets have uh, rolled out uh, across the Northeast region, for example, um, and in California. Um, but that's for another conversation. And so while I have uh, certain reservations about some of the elements of the bill, I am pleased to say that this is a solution that is supported. And now while the others talked about gloom and doom, I just want to ask you, how many of you like beer? A good cold beer on a hot summer's day, show of hands. Okay. How many of you, okay, so those of you who like beer, keep your hands up on a cold, hot summer's day. How many of you um, like shrimp? Keep those, put your hands up, okay. How many, so you get the, the point that I'm getting at here is that if you, if you can put your hands down. If, if you don't care about the gloom and doom scenarios, if those aren't the things that motivate you to look at and focus on this particular climate crisis, recognize that your ability to have a good cold beer on a hot summer's day is going to be impacted by the climate crisis because the zone in which hops for that beer that you love so much are, are able to be grown and grown to the quality that is made as, as good for a good beer, that's under threat. That's what we're talking about. Um, for those of you who are concerned or, or lovers of shrimp, right? Uh, the ability uh, for the climate crisis to sort of bring the shrimp populations to a crashing halt is not something that is that far off or unthinkable if we allow uh, this climate crisis to continue moving in, in the direction in which it is moving. I could come up with a number of other examples like that. For those of you like myself who suffer from allergies on a regular basis, this is something that we have to deal with, right? And dealing with buildings in New York City is clearly our primary way of making a major and significant dent in those emissions, but making sure that we do that in a way that protects some of the most vulnerable residents in our city from escalating rents that will push them out of the places that in many instances they have called home for a very long time has to also be a part of the fashion solution. So I just want to commend all of those of us who worked on this issue, um, and I'll stop there. Can, can I just do a, a request for hands? In the air. <laughs> what's your What's your request? Um, well, how many of you have children? So I have a ten-month-old, and that has brought um, uh, to me a new outlook on this entire conversation. So, are you drinking more or less beer in the past ten months than previously? Right. <laughs> it happens right after diaper change. No. <laughs> All right. Drink beer while you still can but after this panel, or, I mean, it's, it's almost noon, so. So, Beat, can you add a little color to the uh, negotiations over the rent-regulated uh, housing provisions of the, the law? How did we end up with the prescriptive measure model that we sure. have now? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think that many of us realized that if that first hearing on the bill included an angry big real estate owner contingent and an angry tenant contingent that there was an extremely high likelihood the whole thing would fall apart 
Um, Bloomberg had tried to pass something, and, you know, big billionaire mayor couldn't do it. Um, he didn't, you know, enlist activist energy or really try to build a campaign around it, but um, it fell into crashing ruin. There were some good laws that came out as a result of that, but uh, failure. Um, so in this case, we uh, tried to make those politics very, very clear in an aggressive manner. And, you know, I think it took a little while internally in the council and in the mayor's office in particular to understand that you can't introduce that bill because you're just going to get creamed on it. Um, and so, the, so I think that was the politics that shifted on that issue. And we all came to an understanding that um, this is a state-level problem that needs to be fixed. And there's just this, the city's hands are, you know, handcuffed fundamentally on rent regulation by preemption by the state, um, the same way that its hands are handcuffed on preemption on cars and trucks by the feds in the state. So, um, so that's one thing. In, more narrowly speaking, um, there have been Green Council uh, brought together folks to think this through, and I think that was very, very helpful um, in particular, uh, Russell and Chris um, really came up with this idea along with others um, that then we socialized over a two, two and a half year period with our allies in the housing community and um, used our credibility as an organization to say that look, at the end of the day, we're gonna have to figure out a way to deal with this. Um, so that worked. I will say the crashing end of putting this bill together, the C version, um, introduced some, you know, strange uh, stuff into the bill. Um, and so we don't know where provisions in the bill came from that sort of threw in Section 8 and 8020 uh, housing into that uh, pot of prescriptive requirements. Um, that doesn't make any sense to us, um, but it's there. And, um, you know, it, that, that ought to be amended, actually, um, because that's not controlled by state law. Um, but fundamentally, uh, that's how it happened, I think, on, on rent regulation, was the dawning political realization that 200 angry tenants at the hearing was going to tank the bill. Um, I think it's so important to recognize how uh, important Urban Green Council has been in this process. Um, the most important organization I think to to create a platform, an open platform that allowed uh, folks like us to get together and hash through some extremely difficult things, um, get in the same room, physically in the same room, in small working groups, uh, all all different you know facets and aspects of the issue, um, from environmental to tenant advocacy to landlords, uh, in in very small working groups to actually together come up with a plan. Um, I think when you enable buy-in from as diverse an audience as possible, uh, you have so much more likelihood of passing legislation. And I think to, to Pete's point, um, the, the sort of opaque nature with which things were inserted at the end is extremely disappointing, um, like very disappointing. Uh, because we thought we had a way forward that was clear and transparent. Um, so the issue of 8020s, the issue of Hydro-Quebec power coming from Canada, uh, there's a number of other points that are in the bill that we are um, very, very unhappy with. And, you know, Pete, you kind of misspoke a little bit. Uh, so the 8020s don't have to even meet the prescriptive measures. Um, they are fully exempted from the law. 
I'll just say that, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, again, echoing some of my co-panelists here, uh, Urban Green Council played a pretty strategic and important role in helping to act in some ways as a doula, if you will, to help birth <laughs> this particular bill. It's very painful, but we'll get through this. We will get through it. And we did. Um, and I think that, I think that you, you know, one of the things that my organization really tries to focus on and something that we, we do is to make sure that people who are on the front lines of particular kinds of impacts, and in this case, folks who could face sort of uh, increased rents were a part of the conversation through our membership meetings. We brought this up. We did workshops with people on the ground to help them understand the elements of the bill as it was being framed out uh, to help us make sure that we were ground-truthing what we could go back to meetings of the uh, building council and actually say. Um, the other thing that I'll think, I, I think is important to also point out is that in this process of making legislation happen, <clears throat> um, you know, I, I uh, co-chaired and co-led a, a task force that got us to uh, getting uh, Local Law 55 of, of 20. Uh, 18 passed, which is known as the asthma-free homes bill. And I think you, you realize that at the end of the day, it's, it's not ever a pretty process, but it is one in which when you effectively balance um, the needs of most of the constituencies that elected officials have to serve, um, I think you're getting to the point where our democracy is working, I think, more effectively for uh, the vast majority of people. Um, it's not perfect, and yes, we do have things that sort of sneak in in the dead of night into legislation, and we know where they've come from. I mean, let's, let's be candid. <laughs> um, but uh, those uh, are interests that are, are are going to have to be sort of addressed through some amendments and, and fixing of the bills as we move forward, similar to the way in which we will ultimately deal with um, the issue of uh, MCIs. But the, the point that I was going to get to is that I think it's really important to recognize that then uh, when you go through a process like the one put together by Urban Green Council, the 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 willingness of those who've participated in that process leverages a lot of goodwill. So for example, I know that at the end of the day when certain constituents were calling uh, me, and by constituents here I mean elected officials were calling me personally on my cell phone and saying, I need you to talk to so-and-so either in your area of northern Manhattan or I need you to talk to this person because I know you have a good relationship with them on the council. I felt like I could do that. I felt like I could leverage those relationships to push people who might not have been 100% where they should have been on this issue. Um, and that's what I think you buy in a process where you have greater buy-in. And so I just want to end on that point and say, this process worked because what it did was give people a seat at the table to voice particular concerns. They could see that being translated into the actual legislative text. And then at the end of the day, when things got sticky, whether it was with the hospitals association or whoever else came out of the woodwork, um, the you, you, highly unreasonable. You, you felt like, okay, I have certain relationships in certain places. I will use those chits. I will leverage those relationships to try to push back on some of this because this was such a good process. And so there, that's it. Great. Well, that's a, that's a hopeful uh, assessment of all of it or a positive assessment. So uh, as you noted, there 
are, are still quite a few unknowns about this, and, and some of you have mentioned kind of needing amendments or in the next iteration. So there is, in addition to the um, regulations that will be promulgated to implement the law, there's the law calls for the impaneling of an advisory board uh, that has a slate of issues that it's tasked with evaluating and issuing a report on by January 2023. One of those items is reducing building emissions from rent-regulated buildings. Uh, so that's a big a task to consider. Given the, the process that you and many others have just gone through in terms of the law, how do you see the advisory board process playing out uh, in addressing this particular question as to building emissions from rent-regulated buildings? What kind of voices need to be heard in that process and what issues do you think they should consider? And that's open to the panel. Uh, so, sure. So the, uh, the advisory board really should consider where state law is at. Um, and that's a gigantic open question that'll be resolved at least in a uh, extension of the rent laws at the end of this session. So that's that's the dominating issue in Albany right now is what's going to happen with with the city with the rent laws. Um, so that is a crossroads. So by the end of June, we will presumably know uh, the ground that we're standing on. Um, our organization is pushing for uh, a set of uh, bills that we call universal rent control. Um, it sounds like what it is. We want a huge expansion and closure of the, uh, the loopholes in the rent laws. So um, if that passed, then this problem of MCIs being unfair, uh, if the city mandates it, goes away. Uh, and then uh, the city can simply amend the law. And that's what I think the advisory board would, would land on, because there's no physical difference between rent-regulated buildings and non-rent-regulated buildings, they should be treated the same if you're trying to put together a, a, a thoughtful scheme as the, as the city has done. Um, so that's, I think, the first hurdle is the, is the current laws. And then let's see what happens after June and then uh, make the appropriate moves uh, after that. Um, so I, I just, I think I have to echo that uh, the the rent-stabilized uh, law amendments um, and the rent-regulated amendments at the state level, I think will drive the next phase of this process. Um, I have to be honest and say that, uh, you know, oftentimes we hear um, people talking about energy savings as being a, uh, a way to finance investments in buildings. Um, that is often not the case, especially for large centralized heating systems. Um, and or updates to heating distribution, say in a steam building, um, returns on projects like that are not uh, very attractive. Um, so I, I have to say that the MCI tool um, has allowed me to achieve much deeper energy savings um, than I would otherwise achieve. Uh, that I need to be very clear about that. That's not something that everyone is happy to hear, um, but that's true. And so we could talk about what the MCI tool is uh, and whether or not it's a permanent rent increase, rent increase or it sunsets. Um, but I do think that there is uh, some role for it um, and perhaps it's amended. Uh, but I don't think that we can eliminate the ability for landlords to recover um, capital costs beyond uh, just energy savings. Um, so granted, you know, New York City created uh, another sort of um, impetus to make investments, uh, and it's a stick. 
Um, and so if that stick were then to be applied to rent stabilized, you know, that, that will uh, factor into your returns analysis. Um, but from what I've seen, uh, the fines as they are currently um, defined uh, may not be as big of a stick as some people think uh, in at least the rent stabilized portfolio. So I do think that the MCI tool um, is, is a, a rather significant uh, way of achieving energy reductions in, in these buildings. And I don't, I don't think it can go away, um, but that's for day two. <laughs> so day two. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that if you put many of us together in a room, um, that we recognize that some of these upgrades have to be paid for, and the question is how, right? Um, I, for one, am one that understands that MCI is an incentive to landlords, and it's a good thing um, if they're following the rules and if we can negate the impacts of sort of permanent rent increases on people. And so I'm open to having that discussion, and I believe that there may be ways in which we can say, you know, you don't get an increase into perpetuity. That's just, to me, that's ridiculous, right? And so uh, I don't think that the upgrade that you uh, created um, as a landlord essentially is, the, is going to keep costing you <laughs> over and over and over again, and so, or at least at that rate. And so I think those are things that can be put on the table for discussion. But as far as the advisory board, I have to agree um, mostly with uh, everything that has been said thus far. I do want to say one thing that I think is important, too. The <clears throat> another uh, thing that was important to us in this law that we felt comfortable about was uh, when you go to, when you go to uh, Harlem and, and uh, El Barrio and Washington Heights and Newwood, there are a ton of churches in our communities, and many of them are being preyed upon by uh, real estate developers because they're in financial straits, tough straits. And you see a lot of churches sort of giving up their properties to these developers, and I wouldn't say giving up, but essentially creating these sort of leased deals, and the church ends up with uh, sometimes a lot less than they thought they were getting out of the deal, uh, either financially or in terms of space, and then the developer gets to build sort of uh, luxury condominiums or something that essentially uh, sort of drives uh, revenue. Um, the law here does sort of create uh, a bit of a carve-out for the churches, and I think that's really important, and I hope that the advisory board will help focus uh, both the city and then possibly the state in some kind of conversation around where we find the resources to help our houses of worship really move into a place where they too are helping to sort of propel us in the right direction with regards to emissions um, uh, reductions. And so that would be something else that I would say with regards to the advisory board that I'd like to see moving forward uh, in addition to us obviously dealing with uh, the adjustments that have to be made after the state sort of lands in the right place, uh, and we know it will. Let me add one more thing, which is stepping back for a moment here. Society is going to go through a wrenching transformation uh, around the climate crisis, and um, w that can be an opportunity for job creation and an increase in fairness and equity. Um, the climate crisis affects communities of color and low-income communities the worst because 
those communities don't have the wealth and the power to deal with the disaster uh, as easily as wealthy whites do. Um, so uh, what we need here is a giant amount of money uh, to help make change work. Um, and that includes fixing affordable housing and bringing it up to the standard that's needed. So our solution as an organization is always to say tax the rich, tax Wall Street, um, and that's an enormous amount of potential revenue because of the insanely unequal distribution uh, that is there. So what we think organizationally is that the city and the state are going to need to put in a lot of money into affordable housing, uh, including rent-regulated housing, to help make this kind of transformation work. Uh, there are several revenue options for it. People talk about a, a, a corporate polluter fee. If that's done in a progressive way, that's one way. People call that a carbon tax, too. That's the wrong term to use. It's inaccurate. But, uh, but fundamentally, a lot of money here is really needed. Um, and the public sector should mobilize a good chunk of it and then leverage everyone else as we have to, have to spend and, and make those investments. Can I just make a comment um, about the uh, rent regulations, I think, at the state level? Um, one thing that, that, at least in some discussions that I've had uh, in Urban Green Council working groups, is the concept of um, heat, electric, water, submetering, uh, and rent givebacks. Um, so one of the issues that we have in a lot of rent-stabilized housing uh, and even market-rate housing is that the, the tenant and landlord um, have different motivations when it comes to reducing energy consumption. So in a building that is master metered where tenants have uh, their electric costs included in rent, um, there is very little incentive on the tenant's part to reduce electric consumption. So we found at least in the buildings where we've rewired um, and put tenants on a Con Ed account uh, and they no longer have rent included or they no longer have electric included in their rent, um, we see reductions in energy consumption of sometimes 60%. I mean, this is, this is tremendous, right? Uh, even in water, when we bill um, tenants for cold water, we're not even billing for the heat content in water, uh, we see reductions of sometimes 40% just in water consumption. Um, and then in terms of uh, heat, the technology does exist to bill for heat content in steam radiators, hot water radiators. Um, it does allow us to bill for heat content in water, but the current uh, rent stabilization law doesn't allow landlords to bill for heat or hot water in rent stabilized buildings. Um, so there's this uh, rather significant, I think, um, amount of emissions sort of tied up in that that we could address. Uh, but that would have to move through a, a pretty fair process of developing some mechanism for rent give back in the way that electricity is dealt with. So electricity, you know, there's a standard for it. Um, there's, a, uh, there's an equation for rent give back. We don't have that for heat um, simply because the rules just ban uh, billing for um, space heat and, and hot water. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we have about 10 minutes for questions from the audience. I think somebody will be walking around with a microphone so that we can all hear you. Uh, so please, please ask a, a brief question so we can get to as many people as possible. And after that, it's lunch. So everyone will be mad at you if you fail to ask a quick question. They're going to bring beer, though, right? I do not have the answer to that question. These guys on the walls 
they probably could party down if they really wanted to throw some money at this event. Well, that, those are all Scythe Paget colleagues back there, so they, they oh, might have beer, perfect. but I don't know how much they brought. <laughs> all right, question. Yes. Could someone say a little bit about how the local utilities fit into this conversation? How the utilities do? Yeah, I mean, how did they yeah. behave, behave or not behave? Sure, I could take some of that. Um, you know, the, the utilities are just distributing energy in the local grid, right? So they're taking power from external points uh, or gas from external points, and then they are transmitting it to you inside of the Zone J area, right? Um, they do have a say when it comes to, I, I would say that they are involved at the state level uh, when it comes to developing standards, like the renewable portfolio standard, utilities do get involved in, in that. They were heavily involved in the REV process, um, which is New York State's process to rethink the grid and how it operates and how we value different sources of power. Um, but I would say that they're sort of an animal of just uh, transmitting energy locally. Um, the state really is the driver for uh, the amount of renewables that interconnect. Um, this bill is potentially a driver for the amount of renewables that interconnect in New York State. Um, we saw at least uh, an opportunity to um, go above and beyond the renewable portfolio standard at the state level by creating a new market for renewables that interconnect within New York State. Unfortunately, you know, I mentioned the Hydro-Quebec uh, clause that was inserted in the 11th hour. Um, that sort of forecloses that ability. Uh, so only sources of power that can directly deliver to New York City would then count. Correct. Yeah. That's absolutely yeah. correct. So in terms of incentives, yes, right? And the incentives programs, too, though, are developed in tandem with the utilities and the state of New York. So, go ahead. so two things I would say about uh, the, their relationship to this process. One, definitely, as you just mentioned, there's a systems benefit charge. And many of us, uh, from the environmental justice perspective, are looking at those resources and have concerns about the fact that many in communities like Harlem and Washington Heights and Inwood are paying those charges, but not necessarily reaping the same level of benefit uh, with regards to energy efficiency. And so we've definitely had conversations with the state. I would say that down the road, as this program goes into implement, as this law goes into implementation, one of the things that I think that we have to be vigilant about is the fact that um, we want to make sure that energy efficiency is coming very directly to uh, low-income communities and moving that ball forward. We have to deal with this MCI issue, and there's no question about it. Um, but on another track, a bunch of us are really talking to the state about, let's begin to understand sort of where this money is being funneled into NYSERDA, but where is it being funneled back out into the communities on the ground that we are concerned about. We think that there are real opportunities with this law to link up the issue of job creation around weatherization, around some of the uh, stipulated pieces that uh, buildings that are in the rent regulated pool that are, are exempted um, can actually still do and then begin to benefit in the long term from sort of the energy efficiency measures that we're moving towards. And once the MCI piece at the state is fixed, we believe that to be an opening, if you will, of 
probably a floodgate is not the correct <laughs> term, but you know, it's an opening of the switch, if you will, for the electricity to flow um, to be able to pump up the number of jobs in our communities that are actually taking this uh, energy efficiency piece to the next level. Um, the second thing that I'll say about how uh, the utilities are connected to this, um, and particularly here I'm talking about the electrical utility, which is Con Edison in the, in the New York City territory. What we're looking at is Con Edison is under tremendous strain to figure out, like one, with the grid that is aging, um, the challenges that it has on high heat days, et cetera, and the climate crisis sort of uh, sending our electrical use into, continuing to send our electrical use into the stratosphere, as to how to sort of, you know, adopt a series of measures that reduce the load on the system. And this, for us, is obviously a clear pathway to getting to reduced loads. And so I would think that at the end of the day, this is something they should be on board with and helping us to figure out how to move it as expeditiously as possible. Now, Con Edison is Con Edison, and for those of you who are connected to Con Edison, I mean no disparagement, but I'm just telling you Con Edison is Con Edison, and I'll stop there. Just, just to, build off that, <laughs> to build off that comment really quick, um, small landlords need help, right? They aren't sophisticated. Uh, in, you know, in the way that we are, right? We have an entire department that is dedicated to determining how the incentives programs work and whether or not we can use them to further energy efficiency in our building portfolio. Um, so there are a number of programs on the local and state level that target small landlords. Um, you know, New York City Retrofit Accelerator is, is one of them. Um, but I do think that we need a larger public infrastructure to assist landlords. And, and that, that, you know, moves into the private sector as well. Uh, firms like Bright Power, Stephen Winters Associates, um, working with public sector to, to provide guidance uh, for these incentives programs because they're not, they're not easy to take part in. They're actually rather difficult. Um, so we have to sort of mobilize this effort across public and private sector to, to help those landlords comply. Yep. All right, one more question. Um, <clears throat> kudos to you all. Can we just take a bunch of questions? If people ask the questions really quickly, we okay. can probably take at least two more. Okay, forget the kudos. Sure. Uh, so, uh, uh, you, one of the carve-outs you, uh, you, uh, you made, I think, is for uh, buildings owned by Housing Development Finance Corps. Um, I'm a nonprofit, city-funded shelter provider. I have two covered buildings, one owned by an HDFC and one owned by a plain old me, nonprofit. Um, did the issue come up of nonprofit uh, uh, ownership and ha with the same kind of care and attention about nudging us um, ra rather than compelling us to compliance. Thank you. Yeah, n n nudging doesn't work very well. That's the record. I know this sounds terrible, but, but the, the, the record of energy efficiency nudging is it doesn't work. I'm simplifying enormously here, but that's the policy backdrop. It is, it is un, well, that, that did come up. That was very, you know, and there are houses of worship that also manage, right, housing, right? And so that, that was very clear, I think, from the beginning. We are unsure of how, um, how that carve out was written, okay? Because our focus was mainly rent, rent stabilized buildings. Um, and then that carve out kind of appeared, uh, again, sort of last minute. Um, 
not at all sure like who it was written by or who advocated for it or how it was included in the law. Um, okay. I had a question question. actually for you, Cecil, about you, you indicated that you were opposed to carbon trading in part based on the experience of how other carbon markets have, have operated. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate on the specific nature of your concern. Um, in a nutshell, I have concerns that markets in general are not sort of the tools that we use to protect certain constituencies in our society. Um, and so I, I'm part of a team of people with the Union of Concerned Scientists that have done some level of research around uh, carbon markets in the Northeast and uh, what is happening to communities where uh, they are bypassed for emissions reductions um, in the name of sort of creating a carbon trading system. And so one of the things that environmental justice communities are really concerned about is that we have become so focused on carbon emissions that the emissions from polluting facilities that are killing us literally faster and sooner than the the, the climate crisis, if you discount the sort of extreme heat challenges that we're dealing with, are not being focused on. So the NOx and the SOx um, are things that are creating premature death earlier, uh, sort of fueling cardiovascular disease uh, faster, um, and a number of other things like that. And we're not sort of regulating facilities for those things, uh, the co-pollutants, if you will, that are challenging some of our communities. And so Concerns about that um, and making sure that those facilities uh, in communities where we have the highest level of negative health outcomes are really focused on in terms of not just saying it's okay to trade carbon because it is this universal bad and wherever we take it out of the system will be okay, um, but really beginning to zero in on the fact that um, some of the oldest facilities will be uh, the ones that have the uh, worst records on all kinds of polluting emissions, and because it's harder or more costly for them to be uh, engineered up to the cleaner standards, um, there is an ability for those facilities to trade and say, well, okay, we're doing our job. And from our perspective, that's not accurate. Um, we might be dealing with the carbon problem, but we have a host of other co f uh, challenges with regards to co-pollutants. And that's what I mean when I say that those markets are not serving those communities in terms of their health outcomes, in terms of the pollution profiles of those particular places, um, hotspots if you will, is sometimes a term that is used to, to deal with that. I'm not even dealing on the level of the moral argument of, you know, should we allow pollution to continue this way? I mean, we do this in our environmental laws and regulations on a daily basis. And so I am not the one in my uh, segment of the environmental justice movement that will be sort of leading the banner on that charge. I'm far more practical in looking at we have to do better in terms of reducing uh, the co-pollutants that come out of those facilities as well. And I see this emissions trading uh, uh, system as a way to create loopholes around that, which is fueling negative health outcomes in particular types of communities. And so that's where I stand on it. And I, I have a real fundamental problem. Uh, Costa got an airful about this from me, and I'm sure Nick heard about it too, but I don't believe 
we need that. And, you know, I understand the need for resources, and I think we have other means by figuring that out. Um, but um, that's where I stand on it. I think it's a, I just want to just say one thing. Um, I think it's a powerful tool. There's something to be said about a, like a, 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 like a pure market, right? And how powerful of a tool it can be. But to Cecil's point, um, there perhaps are opportunities to tie that type of market with other uh, issues, right? Like equity or housing production um, to, to generate positive outcomes elsewhere. Or mandatory emissions reductions. Right. Period. <laughs> um, energy efficiency, and Cecil, you mentioned refrigeration. I have to be quick. The, um, the Carbon Trust in the, in, the, in the UK did a study last year where they pegged that with better cleaning and servicing of air conditioning and refrigeration units, just preventative maintenance, the global emissions reduction potential is a half a gigaton. If you uh, extrapolate that down in New York City, it's eight and a half million metric tons of waste because of all the refrigeration that's running, particularly commercial and healthcare, as well as AC units. Question. Now, observation. Oh. Con Edison is Con Edison, yeah. and they should be looking at this. Uh, I, sure. <laughs> I, I, I did not mention refrigeration. I'm in, a, I'm in an immense amount of pain, but I did not mention refrigeration just for the record. But I, I hear you, and, and sure. You mentioned cold beer. I have a really quick question. Well, no, so, so this is that's, that was the last question. But okay, but just to touch base on just to touch base on refrigeration, right? Heat pumps were mentioned earlier. Um, the the I think one of the primary issues with refrigeration is the leakage of refrigerants. Right, which you know, some of the refrigerants used, including even the best ones today, uh, have a global warming potential that is potentially thousands of times worse than carbon dioxide. Um, so I know that the industry is moving towards using using carbon dioxide as a refrigerant, which would be potentially ideal because then it's just a one-to-one. -one. But today, the refrigerants that heat pump technology uses or all of our refrigeration uses um, has the uh, uh, climate change um, impact, you know, extremely significant climate change impact. So maintenance means containing leakage of those systems. Yeah. Correct. All right. Thank you so much to our panel and uh, for all of you for being here this, today. Uh, thank you, everyone. I, I won't be the one to stand between you and lunch. Um, lunch is ready. It's across the hall in the reception area. Um, we will be gathering here for a prompt start again at 1.15. Um, we have a packed schedule this afternoon. We have another panel looking at market-based uh, mechanisms that can help facilitate retrofits, and then a facilitated conversation where we will invite all of you to share your perspectives. Uh, thank you again. Lunch across the hall. Uh, let me know if you have any questions. Thanks a lot. Uh, we're going to get started again. Um, I, I hope that everyone enjoyed lunch and had the opportunity to uh, speak with some of the other conference participants. Um, there's such a wealth of expertise on building emissions reductions in New York City in this room, and I, I hope that everyone had the opportunity to um, meet some of the other folks working on this issue and, and hopefully to learn something from another, another conference attendee. 
We have a full program this afternoon, um, so I, I won't be long here. Um, we have a, a panel that will look at ways that market can, the market can support uh, building energy retrofits. Um, and then at 2.30, we will have a facilitated conversation um, in which all of you can participate um, to explore some of the challenges and work that remains with respect to 1253. So with that, I'll turn it over to Katie Ullman, who will be moderating um, this next panel. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Um, hi, everyone. So this is a panel, as Amy said, on uh, market solutions. So these folks can tell you all about the resources they have available um, from financing to installations to education resources to utility programs that um, will help New York City actually achieve these really ambitious goals. Um, to start, we have five panelists in a little over an hour, so we're going to let them each talk for five to ten minutes, and then I'm going to open it up to a Q&A. Um, but to start, we just wanted to get a sense of who we're talking to. So I'm going to do a quick poll. Um, who here is a lawyer? Lots of lawyers. <laughs> um, who here uh, is in policymaking or in a related role? Great. Um, who here is in the nonprofit sector? Awesome, and then who here is in the private sector in real estate or energy? Great, <laughs> cool. So that'll kind of give us you know, a sense of, of, of who we're talking to here. So um, I'm gonna just start by introducing Fred. Um, so uh, Fred is the Vice President of Legal and Business Development for the New York City Energy Efficiency Corporation. Um, and they uh, were started by the city, they're a nonprofit that administers the PACE program, um, as well as this retrofit accelerator. So he'll talk a bit about that. Um, Fred manages the day-to-day -day legal affairs there and the PACE program. Um, he has an MBA from Columbia, a JD from Cornell, and a BA from Amherst. <laughs> Fred, I will let you take it from here. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, very excited to be here to talk to you about my organization, NYSEEC, and also uh, PACE, which is something that's uh, very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I've been working on it for a long time. Oh, is this better? Okay. Um, so I'm going to start with a brief overview of NYSEEC, uh, and then I'll move into a little bit of a deeper dive on, on PACE. So NYSEEC is a 501c3 um, independent nonprofit um, specialty finance entity. We were created by New York City in 2011, and uh, we are focused on energy efficiency and clean energy projects in buildings. Um, most of our projects are in New York City, though we do have some projects outside of the city, um, a couple in Philadelphia and Baltimore, and we're also looking at a project in Boston currently. So, um, we've financed $152 million in projects to date, um, and our projects are projected to reduce uh, 750,000 metric tons of greenhouse gases. Um, we've made improvements in 220 buildings, and uh, many of those buildings are affordable. Um, and it's an area of focus for us. It's consistent with the, uh, the goals of the current administration, and uh, there's, there's certainly a need for uh, financing in that sector that wants to do energy efficiency and clean energy projects. So there's definitely an affinity um, with that sector. 
So we've created 1,600 jobs, um, and like I said, our, our core business really is lending, but we also um, do advisory, um, advisory work. Uh, we have a contract with the City of New York uh, to provide, um, to provide uh, uh, financing expertise um, and advice, and as part of that, we um, are, are going to be the administrator for PACE, and we're also responsible for setting up the PACE program. And that's really what I've been focused on for you know the last six months um, plus, and and since the loss passage, that's really all I've been doing, and I'll get into that in a little bit. So, um, so our core business is lending. We do some advisory work for the city. We also have an advisory engagement with uh, Washington D.C. Green Bank, um, and we're also looking to help other communities um, try to sort of adopt our model. So that's an area that we're interested in pursuing. And I'm happy to answer other questions about NYSEEC, but I'm going to move on to PACE, um, I guess, after we do our presentations. Um, so what is, what is PACE? Uh, quick overview. It's a scalable financing product that enables energy efficiency and clean energy in buildings. Um, the national market size for commercial PACE is approaching 900 million, and it's accelerating. In the last couple of years, there's been a lot, of, um, lot more activity than uh, we'd seen previous to that. Um, like I said, we're the administrator for the PACE program, so we're right now responsible for the launch of the program, uh, but we'll also be responsible for the ongoing management of the program, uh, and that's in collaboration with the Mayor's Office of Sustainability. The program is going to be an open market program. That means that uh, anyone who is eligible to provide financing um, will be able to in New York City, um, and you know that will help to enable with the sort of Availability of capital will help to enable compliance with the greenhouse gas uh, mandates, and that really was kind of the design of the the introduction and the passage of those the law alongside the mandates was the, the care to go along with the stick. Um, NYSEEC will also be an originator of PACE loans. It'll be part of our our, our toolbox. Um, that is our our core business, but that will clearly be separate from the administration business. So um, you know, as a mission driven. Uh, organization, we feel like we're well positioned to sort of help to help New York City achieve its climate policy goals, uh, but at the same time really help to also build the clean economy. Um, as a sort of market participant for about eight years, we really know this market very well uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, engagement with the uh, borrower community, building owners. We know what they need and we know what they want in terms of financing. Uh, so we're, we're really looking forward to advancing both those goals. Um, so just taking a step back, um, really the basics of, of commercial PACE, it's a voluntary financing mechanism uh, for energy efficiency and clean energy projects. Uh, there's nothing mandatory about it. It's a long-term, typically lower interest financing for, again, usually no money down. Um, we're going to be using private funds uh, through pre-qualified capital providers. The, the city will not be contributing any capital, at least initially, uh, into the market. It's really all being done privately. Um, and it's repaid as a charge on the building's tax bill. So it's a separate line item that's going to be on your property tax bill as a New York City building owner. Um, and that's, you know, that's a good thing from a lender's perspective. It's on-bill financing. So that's, that's you know, clearly a plus. Um, and, really the other big thing about PACE and why it's so attractive is the senior lien position. Um, if you don't pay your PACE charge on your property tax bill, 
and ultimately there's a foreclosure on your building, you as a pay lender will get paid before a mortgage lender does. So, so again, very secure financing. Um, it's transferable upon the sale of your property. So once you sell your building, you no longer have obligations to repay that PACE loan. It's the new building owner that takes that on. Um, and then typically the repayment of charges can be passed through to, um, through to, to your tenants under most lease structures. So just quickly on timing, um, right now we're really, like I said, uh, this is all I'm doing lately and we are, um, uh, we have a, a list of things that we have to get done before we can actually launch the program. So program guidelines is, is something that we have uh, in play. We have a draft that's being vetted internally. Um, this is an important document because it's really how the public will interface with the PACE program and understand kind of, you know, the rules of the road in terms of how to get a PACE loan. So uh, we hope to have that available to the public pre-launch, pre um, hopefully within the next couple of months. Um, after that, or actually concurrent with that, we're also uh, drafting rules. So there's a rulemaking process that happens after the, the, the law passes. So that's currently underway. We're drafting those th the rules, and uh, they also have to go through an internal vetting process with the city's law department, the Department of Finance, and other stakeholders. And once there is a, um, a vetted set of rules, that goes to um, uh, the public for comment. Uh, and that's a 60-day process minimum. Sometimes it will take longer than that, and I think it often does. So, you know, that's at least a two to three months process. Um, and then we're concurrent with, with those other things, we are also um, in the process of documenting the program, um, creating some template documentation for, uh, for engagement with capital providers um, and also with, uh, with borrowers. So that's all being done right now as we speak. So um, needless to say, it's a lot of work and it requires approval from a lot of different parts of the city. So. Um, while we would love to have a program in place by the end of this year, um, I think more realistic is some, uh, a, a program that's available in early 2020. But that all being said, if, if you're interested in working on a project now and developing a project, I think it does make sense to start thinking about PACE as an option, um, particularly when the guidelines are available. I think you'll be able to understand pretty quickly whether or not it makes sense for you. Um, and if it's, you know, if there's any complexity to the project, it's probably going to take six months to get sort of going on it. Um, so in, hopefully within that time frame, there will be a PACE uh, program. So I'll, I think I'll stop there. And uh, if anyone has any questions, happy to answer after the presentations. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Brad. Um, so next we have uh, Sadie McKeon. She's the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at the Community Preservation Corporation. Um, and that was started in 1974 by the city to help uh, revitalize older neighborhoods. Um, Sadie's been with the organization since 1992, <laughs> which is really awesome, and uh, is running their business operations, their lending programs, um, and investor relations. Uh, she is going to talk a bit about uh, something she started called Underwriting Energy Efficiency, uh, which is a special program and uh, service that they offer. Uh, Sadie has a master's in um, housing and uh, <laughs> human administration from Cornell and a bachelor's from Fordham University. Thank you. Can everybody hear me? 
little tall for the mic. Um, okay, my name is Sadie McEwen, and I'm with CPC. We were not created by the city. We were actually created by David Rockefeller uh, at a time when the Bronx was burning, and there was tremendous disinvestment in the city's neighborhoods, and the banks wanted to get together and do something about it, so they created CPC to be a risk-sharing venture to go into the bad neighborhoods like Harlem and the South Bronx, Bed-Stuy, I think 1970s, um, and start creating an investment environment for others to come in um, and build on our success. Um, we have financed about 120,000 units across New York City and state. Uh, we do construction and perm financing. We're also a Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and FHA lender. Um, the guide. So when we started looking at energy efficiency back in 2008, the fiscal crisis was upon us. Uh, oil was $150 a barrel. And most of the loans in our portfolio were affordable housing. Marginal economics at best, and we were looking at incomes that were flat and falling, expenses were rising. Um, we wanted to do something that we could help our owners uh, to save money um, in our selfish interest. It would help them keep our mortgages current. And so we started integrating energy efficiency into our first mortgage process. 2008 was when the door closed on creative finance. Um, and the risk people stepped in place of the business people and basically shut down anything new and innovative as it related to lending. There we were with a voice asking lenders to get creative and underwrite energy savings into the first mortgage process. Energy efficiency was quickly identified as a, as a, a need was quickly identified for financing. And there I am in the first mortgage market saying, there is more money in the first mortgage market than any incentive program could provide. Um, and so if we could just tap into the first mortgage market, we could provide capital to make buildings more efficient. So we were projecting savings, underwriting those savings into the first mortgage to leverage additional private debt, additional private debt to pay for the savings. Didn't take right away. So what did we do? We wrote the book. Um, and we put out this guide, Underwriting Energy Efficiency, and it basically says what I described, which is um, allows an owner to evaluate energy savings in their building, allows a lender to adjust for the risks by not underwriting 100% of the savings but a percentage, monetizing those savings, and putting it into the first mortgage. A case study of this, very briefly, uh, we had a building, 1920s walk-up building um, in the Bronx, 35 apartments, Basic energy efficiency scope, I'm not going to go into detail. The historic net operating income was 132000 After the retrofit, we were projecting $151,000 net operating income. Net operating income increases value in a building, and it gives you the ability to borrow more money. And that's our whole very simple solution to the problem. We were able to leverage an additional $200,000 in private first mortgage debt, no incentives, no subsidies, to help pay for the retrofit. Um, that was great, but what we were finding was that we still couldn't get people interested. <laughs> so we're always trying to create solutions at CPC. So the next thing that we did that we worked on with Bright Power um, for what felt like an eternity, um, but wasn't really an eternity, was put together this snappy little tool that we call CPC Verify, where you can go onto our website. We worked with Bright Power. They came up with some very complicated algorithm, which I can't pretend to understand or explain. Um, but it takes data from buildings that have been energy retrofit, puts them into a database, and then based on, you put in your, your zip code, the type of uh, building you have, the year it was built, and, and 
in the number of units, and it will generate for you a very simple number of how much money you might be able to save if you went through an energy retrofit. Um, and this is to try and capture people's interest, generate demand. Um, and so this was another tool that we came up with. It's available on our website. Um, I'm happy to, I think the slides will be shared and people can access it. It's just a very simple way to get people interested in saving money. Um, but here we are now, and the conversation is no longer, the center of the conversation is no longer energy efficiency and saving money. It's now carbon neutrality. Um, and so once again, CPC finds itself in a place where we need to pivot and we need to think differently about buildings. I had the um, privilege to go to the Netherlands last summer for a week with the Retrofit New York team and look at the energy sprung model in real time and how they're not just saving money, but reducing carbon in their, in their social housing buildings, their public housing, if you will. It was fascinating. So we're, we're converting from this complicated building system that we've all been living with our whole lives to what should be a very simple solution uh, with a heavily clad building and a passive house with a solar array to offset the use, getting you to net zero and driving down your carbon. Um, and so some future initiatives that CPC is working on. We have the next iteration of our underwriting guide. So we're going to take the underwriting guide deals with simple solutions, mod rehabs, and gut rehabs of existing buildings. It does not deal with net zero. Um, it deals with deep energy retrofit, but it doesn't get you all the way to zero. So we're going to add a supplement to our guide. It's going to explain to people what it means to be net zero, how to get there, and then it's going to explain to lenders how to underwrite that, that performance. It's no longer about savings when we're talking about carbon neutral and net zero. It's about building performance, high, high performing buildings, not about what we can save in existing buildings. So we're trying to change the language, change the conversation. Um, and then the, the, the next thing that we're working on is a carbon neutral summit. As an affordable housing lender, we work with lots and lots of different stakeholders to try to get at these difficult issues, whether they're around housing affordability or in this case around energy efficiency and carbon neutrality. You're dealing with lots and lots of different people uh, who are coming at an issue from lots and lots of different perspectives. And what that creates is confusion. And so what CPC wants to do as the, the language has just been introduced, is to get everyone on the same page about what it means to be carbon neutral. Uh, first of all, what is carbon? So that people understand what carbon is, what it means to be carbon neutral, and then take a look back at where we've been since, say, 2008, or even further back, um, where we are today, and then how do we get to the, the high-reaching uh, goals of getting to carbon neutral by 2040, 2025, all of the different metrics in the legislation that's been passed here in the city and in the state. Um, and so we are an in, thought of as an intermediary, uh, which means that we're in the middle of a lot of stuff, and we have money. Um, and having the money gives you a voice in the conversation, um, but having so many stakeholders and partners gives you ideas and gives you the opportunity to bring all those people that you work with all the time together to get on the same page. So we're going to have a carbon neutral summit um, probably end of this calendar year or early 2020. Um, and then ongoing, we continue to support the efforts of Retrofit New York um, and trying to drive existing buildings to carbon neutral and net zero, as well as look at other opportunities outside of multifamily affordable housing, outside of multifamily housing, to try and scale the production 
of the exterior EFIS systems, the solar arrays, to try to drive the cost down. Because the biggest problems outside of just people knowing what it is, and demand is going to be there now because there's a big hammer out there with the new legislation, um, but trying to get people on the same page, and I lost my thought. Anyway, um, trying to get people to the same place as it relates to what is carbon neutral. So the money that, that CPC has and that the banks have is a very powerful tool. Our goal at CPC has been to try to bring those banks to the table and show them the power that they have. And that's really the premise of the CPC program. And that's it. Thanks, Sadie. So next we have Danelle Baird. He's the CEO and founder of Block Power. Uh, they market, install, um, and finance solar and energy efficiency projects for uh, houses of worship, nonprofits, small businesses, and multifamily housing in New York City. Um, Danelle has a background in community organizing, uh, an MBA from Columbia, um, and a BA from Duke University. So, Danelle, you can come on up and talk about Black Power. Great. Thanks, Katie. Um, hi, everybody. Um, I'll keep it short. Um, I learned about energy efficiency while working as an outside advisor to the U.S. Department of Energy during the first Obama term. I'd uh, worked for his campaign as a senior staffer. When we won, my assignment was the green buildings component of the stimulus. We invested like $6.5 billion from Vice President Biden's office in energy efficiency across the country, and like most of it didn't work. So my job is to fly state to state to negotiate with governors and mayors and utilities and banks to, to, to think about how to stand up the green buildings industry in, 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 in these 20 states where we were targeting. And for the most part, we, we, we weren't able to get it to work. Um, utility companies were recalcitrant. Um, we wanted to create green municipal bonds that labor union pensions could purchase uh, in exchange for creating living wage green construction jobs. Um, but uh, the Wall Street banks weren't ready to structure those bonds. Um, I think they were concerned about an imminent collapse in the commercial real estate industry to follow the residential collapse. Um, we then started working on PACE, and um, were able to put PACE legislation in several states, but were at that time stopped by the American Mortgage Association, um, who had significant concerns about um, PACE and their seniority of the mortgages. So anyway, we, we, we spent a lot of time and effort trying to figure this stuff out. Um, and we've heard a little bit about financing from CPC and NYSEEC, but the other, the other hard part of this is the challenge around engineering and the fact that the building-by-building building engineering analysis that needs to be performed on each and every building in order to figure out what kind of investments make sense is far, far, far too expensive for 95% of the commercial buildings in America, including New York City. And so when you think about the building stock even across New York City, while we have more Class A skyscrapers than all the other cities in the country, the vast majority of our buildings are not Class A skyscrapers. They're much smaller buildings, whether it's multifamily or commercial um, throughout the city. And the building-by-building building cost of engineering analysis is still far, far too high to support the kind of um, retrofits that we need at scale. So um, after spending a few years working with the Obama administration, I um, went to B School at Columbia. Um, and started a tech company called Block Power. Uh, we were fortunate to partner with the U.S. Department of Energy and raise some capital from Silicon Valley. Um, uh, the chairman of Google, I guess he just stepped down, is one of our investors. Early investor in Uber is one of our investors. 
um, Andreessen Horowitz who invested in Twitter and Airbnb. And the idea, and let me apologize, the idea is how do you take um, the, the innovations that are coming out of Silicon Valley in software in terms of the collapse of the cost of machine learning and artificial intelligence, the collapse in the cost of cloud computing, the fact that mobile computing is now heavily distributed, and can we apply those technologies to solving the building by building engineering and financing challenges that have plagued the energy efficiency industry for the last 50 years. Um, the way we think about it is um, we like to partner with um, governments and utility companies uh, who hire us to uh, retrofit hard to reach small commercial and multifamily buildings. So some of that small businesses, some of that's houses of worship, um, a lot of it's class B and C uh, commercial space, a lot of it is multifamily residential buildings. Um, a relevant example is we were hired by the city of New York to retrofit 500 multifamily residential buildings in Brooklyn, uh, which was a program that ran for three years. That program was an input into the building laws that we're discussing today. And so we learned a lot about the specific challenges that you know, mom and pop or even regional you know, uh, owners of these properties run into uh, when trying to retrofit buildings at scale. Uh, fortunately, we were successful. We did about $20 million of projects um, in retrofitting existing buildings, and we just learned a ton about what it's actually going to take to do uh, energy efficiency and renewables and battery storage, or even some of the passive house stuff that you were talking about, Sadie. How do we do this in New York buildings at scale? Um, we think it requires um, a combination of software, financing, um, project management. Um, we think there's a huge problem in the HVAC installation industry and the fact that um, there aren't enough people who are properly trained to do this well, and so uh, there's a lot of pricing power that needs to be renegotiated in order to make retrofits affordable and accurate, um, and so that's what we focus on on Block Power. Thanks. Thanks, Danelle. Um, so next we have Helen, and uh, she works for the Building Energy Exchange, um, and they are a really trusted expert and educational resource for everyone in the city when it comes to how we're going to implement um, and, and what actually unfolds as pertaining to Bill 1253. Um, so she'll share a little more about her work there developing energy efficiency resources. Um, take it from here, Helen. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, so my name is Helen Shanani from the Building Energy Exchange. Uh, so as Katie mentioned, we're an educational nonprofit that um, strives to provide best practices on energy efficiency upgrades for buildings for um, really the diverse group of stakeholders that are involved in the process of uh, making decisions about buildings. So our, uh, let me actually get our, there we go. All right, so here we are. So our mission at BX is to ultimately reduce the impacts of climate change uh, by improving the built environment. So uh, we work to achieve that by serving as a trusted neutral advisor to the building industry and broader community of New Yorkers on how to transition uh, more quickly to healthy, comfortable, and energy-efficient buildings. I think um, after this morning, if we weren't all very clear on the, the scale of the problem here in New York and the role that our buildings play, I think we all now know the reason why we need to focus on buildings, why uh, the Climate Mobilization Act is focused on improving efficiency in buildings because it just represents such a large opportunity 
for the city in moving towards our climate action goals. Um, so at BX, we uh, begin by seeking to um, reach out to the really broad swath of decision makers, as I mentioned. So everyone ranging from building owners, property managers, um, architects, designers, engineers, energy consultants, co-op board members. There's really just a diverse group of people who are involved in making decisions about buildings, um, and many of whom are coming to these issues with very um, disparate levels of technical knowledge about what is needed and what can be done to move forward. Um, so our goal really is to provide resources that can connect uh, that diverse community to information to meet them where they are. So what exactly do we do at BX to make that happen? Uh, we have kind of three main areas of focus. Uh, the first being to build community. So we have a physical space in downtown Manhattan, Brooklyn Bridge City Hall, and we provide a space to bring these diverse stakeholders together to get folks like environmental advocacy groups talking to utilities, the city and the state government, um, to have an opportunity to cross-pollinate, share ideas, and come together to find new solutions. Uh, we also focus on everyday efficiency measures, so those are some of those uh, more low-hanging fruit, the opportunities to improve systems that might pay back in three to five years. And then more recently, we have um, been focusing much more on high-performance retrofits. So those are the types of long-term planning um, projects that will look at opportunities to implement holistic, deep measures um, into your building's capital planning cycle. And we have three major channels through which we try to accomplish these tasks. So the first being education, um, such as trainings, topical events, panels such as these, and symposia. We also create educational tools. These are mostly uh, reports, case studies on retrofits of different building typologies that have been successful along with lessons learned. Um, and then we also have a number of campaigns that are directed more broadly at people beyond those who are typically in the room having conversations about energy efficiency to try to just broaden the conversation, broaden the number of people across New York who are aware and familiar with these issues that we're confronting in our buildings and um, increase that buy-in to have more collective support for the work to be done. And lastly, we also have exhibits in our physical space, and these are meant to be hands-on opportunities for people, again, with diverse levels of technical knowledge to be able to come in, uh, see and experience new advanced technologies, and learn how these might be implemented in their own buildings. Um, so our education, since our founding in about 2009, I should mention we were created under the Bloomberg administration, but we are an independent nonprofit. Um, so we do still work quite closely with the city, which I'll, I'll mention some examples of that work in, in just a minute. Um, 
but just to highlight the diversity and number of people who come through our space and use our resources. Nearly 20,000 different building decision makers come through our space. We also partner with a wide variety of organizations, 50 plus organizations, um, to put on events in our space so we not only create, curate, host our own events on, on topical issues that might be in the news, but we also work with organizations that have like-minded goals um, to provide as diverse a swath of content as possible so we can really reach a broad audience. Um, and then the tools that I mentioned, we have everything ranging from very detailed technical reports like data into action, which is um, shown up here. That was a deep dive into energy benchmarking and audit data, looking at from local law 84 and 87, and um, pulling from that information uh, actionable steps, packages of energy conservation measures that can be completed in specific building types from small residential to large commercial and everything in between, um, and how those packages of measures might align with uh, times, various times in a building's life cycle, such as time of refinance, tenant turnover, um, time of equipment replacement, to really start thinking in more of that holistic, long-term way that will be necessary for us to reach these um, ambitious climate action goals. We also have campaigns, as I mentioned, like Daylight Hour. This one's coming up pretty soon. It's just a fun social media event about using daylight in lieu of uh, electric lighting in spaces that have sufficient light. It's a social media campaign, and it's just an example of a way where, again, we're trying to broaden the reach and awareness of these issues. Lighting is something very tangible compared to, say, boiler upgrades, which are out of sight, not particularly exciting to the average person. So we look to find ways where we can connect efficiency in tangible ways to people who may not even think that it's something within their daily control and get them to realize that they have some ownership over that. Um, and then our case studies, I think, are some of our most important resources in terms of providing examples of New York City buildings of different types that have implemented some of the measures that uh, will be necessary to be scaled up across the city and provide those lessons learned about implementation. Um, lastly, as I've mentioned, we have these exhibits, and I'll dive into a little bit more detail of our current exhibit to give you a sense of um, what we showcase. So first example that I'd like to start with if you saw John Lee's presentation this morning, this slide might look very familiar. So these are resources for a better steam heat campaign that we did in partnership with the Mayor's Office of Sustainability. And we created this playbook, uh, which really broke down pretty simply four main categories of measures that most buildings with steam heat can complete. We tried to make it as clear and comprehensible as possible. Um, this is a great example of how, yes, we need to be thinking about high-tech, high-performance upgrades moving forward, but steam heating systems touch some, somewhere around 80% of multifamily buildings across the city. They're notorious for 
performing poorly, wasting energy, making people uncomfortable, making loud noises that keep you up at night. And so there's actually huge opportunity to start reducing emissions, improve comfort, and reduce um, energy use and save money just by starting with the systems that we have today. Um, and so we also created a series of case studies to go along with this playbook, um, one of which was particularly impressive, the Park Terrace Gardens case study. This was a five-building co-op up in Inwood, and they, um, they actually had a group of co-op residents, not even board members, who just really championed the idea of efficiency, took it upon themselves to educate themselves about what could be done in the building, opportunities to improve comfort while saving money, and they successfully lobbied the board to complete the comprehensive list of steam heating measures outlined in that playbook. And after this work was completed, they are now saving an annual average of $100,000 a year and have reduced their heating fuel use by about 20% per year. Um, and in terms of payback, this project actually paid back in under three years without an incentive, uh, but they were able to access an incentive through NYSERDA, through the state, um, which cut that payback period to, down to just over one year. So before we even begin thinking about these high performance options, there is still a huge amount of opportunity, savings opportunity, comfort improvement opportunity out there, um, starting with these systems that are so common across the city. Uh, our current exhibit that we ha have up um, quickly describes Celebrate New York. I encourage you to come to our learning center and visit it. The panels are also all available online, but this was a project where we collected information on 60 different retrofit projects from across the city. Um, these projects represented everything from relighting the Chrysler building to um, upgrading heating and cooling systems and affordable housing to complete comprehensive passive house renovations of townhouses and everything in between. So it really provides a great example of um, the ability to do something wherever you are today. There, there are various measures that you can take um, and I encourage you to check that out. Uh, there's a lot of great information in there. Uh, and then lastly, uh, on the high performance front, which is really what we're thinking about now in, in light of the Climate Mobilization Act and what it'll take to, to reach these goals, uh, we, we at Building Energy Exchange have been working closely with the Mayor's Office of S Sustainability, particularly the high performance retrofit track, which John Lee mentioned this morning, and uh, we've coordinated to put together this series of tech primers. And so these are, again, fairly simple overviews, introductions to technologies such as um, air source heat pumps, VRF variable refrigerant flow, um, energy recovery ventilation, advanced air sealing and insulation techniques, the types of measures that um, will the city will really be pushing for moving forward. And the idea is that these documents provide enough information to give um, kind of a general audience uh, 
basic understanding of the pros and cons of these various technology options, what building typologies they might be most appropriate for, and then provides recommendations for implementation to try to break it down in a simple way. Um, and we currently have about 15 of these available online on our website, as well as the Retrofit Accelerator website, and uh, we'll have 20 of them when all is said and done. Um, so to close up, I just want to encourage you all to come visit us at the Building Energy Exchange. Again, we're a physical space where we really want to foster um, a community of as diverse a group of professionals, community members as possible, so we can all work together to achieve solutions, to meet the climate challenge, um, to share information. And uh, there's a lot of great resources that we have on hand where you can really see some, some hands-on solutions in person. Um, and the last thing that I'll mention is that we do have a series coming up. Um, the first event is this Wednesday. Fortunately, it's sold out. Um, but we're partnering with the Mayor's Office of S Sustainability to um, create a series on the Climate Mobilization Act. So the event this Wednesday sold out uh, will be streamed on our YouTube channel. There'll be a follow-up on May 30th, I believe, if you can't make it. And then uh, we plan to hold future events where we'll work with additional partners to do deeper dives into topics such as uh, the pace aspects of the legislation, as well as the green roots and some of the other issues. So I encourage you to check out our website and stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. Um, and last but not least, uh, we have Lisa DeVito, who is um, on the energy efficiency team at Con Edison, and she will tell us a bit more about their programs um, and what they're doing to help the city reach the, the bill's goals. Thanks, Katie. Hi, I'm Lisa DeVito with Con Edison. I'm just gonna give a little overview of our programs and then also highlight a little bit about what the regulatory landscape looks for us and some things coming down the pipeline for us in the near term as well, too. So you know, the policy landscape, carbon reduction strategies and clean energy policy is a, is a focus now. We're seeing it on the state level as well as the city level. Um, on the state level, we have the state energy plan and the 2030 goals. Um, there's the new efficiency New York proceeding that we're currently in the middle of, which is 185 TBTU cumulative um, energy savings goal by 2025. We also heard um, this year the 2019 Green Yield deal came out. And then on the city side, comparatively, we're working through things like intro 1253, thinking about building coals, and a lot of the city's 80 by 50 goals and 40 by 30 emission goals as well, too. So, you know, it looks like we're all being asked to do a lot more. Um, Con Edison certainly in its programs have been growing and being asked to do a lot more year over year as well, too. So we do have some programs that kind of align with the, the goals of 1253 that we'll jump into. So we've been really been trying to expand our commercial and industrial offers. 
Um, in 2018, we saw $12 million in incentives in over 2,000 projects with over 130 gigawatt hours of savings. This year, we're looking to spend over $50 million incentives, so we certainly have increased that year over year. Um, and some new things that we're doing are in um, enhanced incentives for lighting fixtures, looking more at HVAC projects, and also exploring more about um, giving out custom incentives as well, too. Um, last year, we did expand our program and had a new instant lighting rebate program for qualified lamps. That was trying to work with distributors more to get savings at the distributor level going a little bit higher up in the supply chain to make sure that the savings are flowing through and that um, the products that we need are being brought into the market. We also introduced an HVAC early replacement and extended life incentive and um, kicked off our strategic energy partnerships. That's a partnership with some of our largest customers, helping them plan energy efficiency into their capital planning cycles to make sure that they're taking advantage of the programs and also thinking about energy efficiency in their planning as well, too. We also have a multifamily program there. Um, where we are trying to engage more customers there. Last year, we did over $12 million in incentives and over 2,500 projects. Uh, through that program, too, we also work with our non-wires programs, and we call that the Enhanced Neighborhood Program Incentives there, working with BQDM. Um, we also had enhanced lighting and custom incentives there as well. Um, this year, we're expanding our prescriptive HVAC offering there, and we're also introducing new gas new gas measures. Um, that's a lot of that's through our smart solutions and our non-pime solutions offers. You know, so for us, our programs are sort of regulated by the DPS, and so there's two key things I want to highlight that are happening on the state level. The first is the New Efficiency New York proceeding, which set uh, the statewide and uh, it's a utility-based uh, 31 TBTU target for the utilities. Um, there have been initiatives that came through this proceeding as well, too, such as looking at um, a percentage of the incremental spend going to low to moderate income customers, as well as a focus on developing heat pump programs being sponsored by every utility, and a new um, thinking of um, incentives that can go to things like cooling, um, we're calling it a kicker incentive that um, we'll be exploring as well too. So on April 1st, the Joint Utilities filed a filing where we set our goals from 2021 through 2025, or rather than set them, we filed for them, and so they'll be approved by the Commission in an order, hopefully um, later this summer or into the fall. Now on a parallel pathway, Con Edison also filed for a rate case in January. Um, in 2017 was the first time energy efficiency was incorporated into our rate case, so we're continuing that now in our current rate case. Um, so we'll be working through it um, and negotiating the rate case over the course of the summer. But we did file for over $600 million in electric and gas energy um, energy efficiency investments. Um, we are seeking to amortize those costs to moderate bill impacts, and we hope to have those new rates settled and in effect for 2019. So both the new efficiency New York proceeding and our rate case will sort of set and establish our goals and targets for 2019, which will sort of dictate the funding and spending and the types of programs that we're going to be running in the future. Um, so, you know, we do see a lot of opportunities and risks out there with the work that needs to be t done with these building retrofits, we do see the need for deeper and longer savings, you know, going beyond the HVAC and lighting that have been sort of the stronghold of the programs to date. But, you know, the challenge of that is 
those deeper savings come at higher costs. So you know, will we be able to afford to do so with the budgets that we're afforded to through both the rate case and the new efficiency New York proceeding? Um, you know, although we do want to expand the energy efficiency, um, the, the cost and the bill impact to our customers is also a concern for us too. So balancing the two of those are going to be things that we're thinking about as we go through the summer and kind of settle on what, what the budgets and targets are again. Um, and also now with things um, looking at electric and gas holistically is something that we'll be seeing more of. So, you know, there has been a lot of historical attention on our electric side, but thinking more about the gas side and figuring out, you know, pathways to involving more things like heat pumps and things like that is going to be very top of mind and a big part of the planning cycle as we go forward. So um, just to kind of to wrap up, if anyone here has any inf um, questions, you can always reach out to kana.com um, for more information about all of our programs and offerings, and we'll be happy to answer any questions as well, too. Thank you. All right, so we actually have about um, 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so for questions. So uh, yeah, Amy has a mic and yes, Jared. Um, so I see that uh, national- oh, Will you introduce yourself? Oh, sorry, Jared yeah. Rodriguez um, <laughs> from the Left Rack organization. Uh, oh, I see that um, National Grid is considering blending of hydrogen gas into the existing gas network. Um, is that something that Con Edison is considering as an early measure to reduce emissions from natural gas? That's something sort of out of my purview that I okay. probably can't comment on, but thank you. <laughs> nice try. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, any other questions? Yeah? outsourcing more of that? Will you bring me more of it in-house? What's the plans within coordination uh, within Kana? Yeah, you know, right now I think we're sort of thinking about maintaining the structure that we currently have in place in the short term, but that can certainly be influenced and changed as the program structures change going forward. But right now I would say it's probably a, a steady state is the best bet. The rollout of this bill has focused on the cost involved. I've looked at it in terms of the efficiency and a long-term benefit to co-ops of the efficiency. Has anyone calculated the emission savings that could be accomplished through self-paying loan programs and incentives? because that might bring us close to where we have to be at least for a while. Yeah, sure. Um, we, like I said, we, uh, my company, we, we greened 500 buildings. Many of those were co-ops. Some of them were HCSDs and low-income co-ops. Um, for example, in one of the buildings, you know, they were currently using natural gas. We put solar panels on the roof. We put um, in-unit electric heat pumps in the building and we're able to, you know, um, I think um, across the portfolio, um, you know, there's several thousand tons annually of 
instances we were able to save uh, building owners as high as 73% on their annual costs. And when you think about it, um, it's because uh, lots of these buildings are so old and so poorly maintained over time, right? They haven't been able to make investments in CapEx or maintenance for several decades. So they're more inefficient per square foot, right? Than same size building on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And so you can see really, really significant energy savings, which make the building more profitable, as well as um, as greenhouse gas reduction. So from, from our perspective, we, we think it's totally feasible, even for the highly regulated, low and moderate income buildings, to figure out through the self-paying mechanism or you know, heating as a service or retrofits as a service, it's totally feasible for us to do all of this stuff. The, the political and policy fixes are important, I think for me, the lesson from the Obama administration is you can have a lot of the political and policy stuff in place, but green buildings are so difficult to, 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 to do and implement that you know we need more solutions than that. So I agree with you that there are considerable ways to make considerable progress, um, even in the low-income housing of origin of hospitals through privately financed self-pay. Yeah, and in that, yeah. There, okay. Um, I just wanted to, to use a, uh, something different to try to cast a, a different lens on the issue. So I, I hear what you're saying. I, I totally get it. We have to reduce carbon. I think of it more broadly, um, like when all of a sudden buildings were required to do phase one environmental site assessments back in 1980. Um, and no one was really focused on tanks in the ground, asbestos on the boilers, lead paint, radon, or any of the other issues that come back at you in a phase one. All of a sudden, because the lenders required it, everyone was addressing taking the tanks out, removing the asbestos, getting the lead out of the paint. Um, and what happened? An entire industry grew up around remediating environmental conditions in buildings. And this is kind of like that. But the difference here is that you're going to be mandated to do it, but you're also going to save money. And so everybody focuses on, I need an incentive to pay for this. Um, but there were no incentives to take the tank out of the ground or the asbestos off the pipes. The bank told you you had to do it if you wanted to close your loan, and so you did it. And here we are all these years later, 40 years later, um, and most of the tanks are out of the ground. The asbestos is almost all gone. Uh, we figured out how to remediate lead paint. Radon is being mitigated. Um, all of these things have been solved. And as a lender, I still don't understand the science behind all of those things. But I certainly understand how to integrate it into my process so that it got done. And, and I think of this issue like that. And at the end of the day here, you're going to have a better building better comfort, less carbon, and more money in your pocket. And this will pay for itself with the initial investment up front through savings in the building. So it's, it feels like a crisis, and it is. It feels like it's, it's a big uh, obstacle, and we all have to do this, and we don't want to. But the reality is we have to, and it's actually going to create a lot of jobs. It's going to make the air quality a lot better and it's going to put money in, in building owners' pockets. 
And Sadie, maybe just one more question about that, and Fred, you could speak to this, or really any of you guys, but when a building owner is uh, thinking about doing this for the first time, how what factors uh, should they be considering when they're choosing a financing option so they don't need to shell a ton of money out of pocket when they get started? So just just going back to the last question, just yeah. wanted to address that quickly. Um, so, you know, we, we underwrite to savings, and we, you know, we understand that these projects will ultimately perform and, and save the, you know, the building owner, you know, potentially a significant amount of money when they're doing these, this work. It's not, it's not the case, though, with most lenders. And I, I think, you know, there's definitely, you know, we've had a lot of conversations with building owners who have, have tried to get financing, um, you know, particularly, I think, in the, even in the, um, the affordable housing sector, um, you know, we, we've had many conversations with um, with our you know our friends at HBD, HDC, and you know they they there are people in those organizations that understand that that these projects will save money, but there are a lot more people within those organizations that say this costs money, and you know there are things that we can we can pay for, and things that you know we'll have to value value engineer out, and, and that's often the thing that gets sort of taken out of the out of the project or the financing and so I feel like there needs to be that push it, it's really you can't just rely on sort of the um, sort of uh, 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 you know the, the the basic understanding that the, that you can achieve those savings I, mm -hmm. I think you really need the, the sort of the stick to go along with um, along with that understanding yeah as it relates to where do you start um, Green PNA or a physical needs assessment that includes energy um, performance in it is an, is an important first step. Used to be you had your engineer over here doing a physical assessment of the building, and then you had an energy audit over here, and your engineer's report was this thick, and your energy audit was this thick, and the two never came together. And that has changed dramatically, so now you can get a physical needs assessment with a green component. A lot of engineers and, and energy companies have come together on that. That's where you start. That'll tell you what you can do, how you can do it, what it will cost, and what you will save, and how quickly the items that, you're, that you can choose on a menu basis to do uh, will drive, how much carbon it will drive down, and how, much, how long it will take to pay back the investment. It's really important to make the building smarter because all the buildings are really dumb and so there's like low-cost sensors, internet connectivity, there's all these very cheap things that you can do to get a baseline understanding of how your building is specifically uh, wasting energy and creating uh, excess expense and greenhouse gas emissions. And then with that baseline of data, when you get your green preliminary needs assessment that Sadie is referring to, in combination, those two things can really help you with financing, with project management. And so making your building uh, not dumb and not wasteful through like very low cost sensors, stuff like that, um, which you can buy at Home Depot or order from Amazon uh, is a great place to start. Yeah, there's also a drive to look at portfolios, not just building by building. So if, a, if one of your um, clients, if you're an attorney, owns a portfolio of buildings, they shouldn't just be looking at the next building that's up for financing or that's in poor condition or at year 15, whatever kind of building it is. They should be looking at their entire portfolio, engaging a consultant to determine what they can do and at what point in the cycle of that building they should do it so that everyone is always doing something as it relates to making their buildings 
um, more carbon neutral and better performing. And I think Danelle brings up a really important point. I mean, the, da the data is critical, and I, don't, I just don't feel like there's enough of it out there to sort of you know, help you make the case for it. And, and so that's something that we're definitely striving to do is collect some data, really meaningful data in a, you know, kind of a robust way. And once you have a large enough data set, I feel like you'll be able to make that case. But right now, it's, it's very sort of, it's sparse. Yeah, just to put a finer point on it, I mean, basically the city of New York needs to get to a place where you have a website that's like Google, and every building owner or lender or contractor, whoever types in the address, and then what needs to happen to green that building to bring it into compliance in a very specific way would pop up so that a contractor, a lender, a building owner, tenants, everyone can understand like the data says, this is what's needed to fix this building and bring it into compliance. And so, you know, it's gonna take us a little time to get there, but that's kind of where this needs to head. Yeah. Hi, thank you all so very much. My name is Roberta Gordon. Uh, and I'm, I'm coming at this question, first I was just to address, Danelle, a question for you specifically, but listening to Sadie, actually I wanted to draw a contrast that now leads into the question for Danelle, which is that I'm an environmental lawyer, among other things, and kind of grew up being a lawyer, doing phase one environmental assessments, and the difference between the growth of that industry and what we have now is that both the owners and of properties as well as those lenders were faced with multi-million dollars of liability if they didn't address the environmental contamination issue. And it was an interest, it was a self-interest really that grew that industry and made it what it is today. So I see that in sharp contrast to what we have now with energy, um, but it does lead into the question of whether you, Donnell, I think you are one of the few people so far today to address the serious obstacles that you've seen to actually achieving the kind of goals that are set for the New York City legislation. And I'm wondering, number one, do you think that the goals can be achieved in a time frame set forth? And if so, what steps do you think need to be taken given the obstacles that you've seen? What a great question, way to put me on the I spot. I also want to say one other thing. I'm also an investor in Investor's Circle, which is a seed funder of your of yeah, your, we have, of I your think business. we have some angel investors from, from you guys. So thank you for the money. It's great. Welcome. Um, I think um, we've done good stuff with it. So um, yes, the goals are totally achievable. Um, they're totally achievable. There, there's like literally no reason that we can't do this other than um, the entrenched kind of like corporate and political and policy bureaucracy of the city, which in many ways... Um, has helped us to solve and manage lots of challenges. And I think Sadie's example is a great one, right? Like all of that infrastructure, the Department of Buildings, the this, the that, the, con the plumbing licenses, right? The fact that you have to call a consultant to get a building permit, you have to call this consultant in Queens who's gonna call, what's it called, Joseph? An expediter who sits at the Department of Buildings and takes the call from Queens, and then you pay both of them to go pull the the blueprint for the building so that you can figure out where the boiler's located and is it still accurate and is it up to, there, there's just all these layers and layers of stuff which um, serve a purpose but will need to be rethought in a totally different way in order to allow us to achieve those goals, right? And so Uber went public last week and you know one of my investors made $400 million and yesterday in the Times there's this article 
uh, that talked about the taxi industry and the kind of existing taxi industry and how it preyed upon all of these like immigrant drivers and they're getting these crazy loans and they're signing documents and they don't speak English and people are just exploiting them and buying yachts and you know craziness. And when you look at what Uber did to the taxi industry, a lot of us feel, you know, oh, technology is this kind of wave and it's, you know, causing all this disruption and displacement. In the green building sector, we need that. I mean, since Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the White House in like the 70s and he started funding the weatherization assistance program in 1976, which I think Cecil talked about in an earlier panel, like we have been trying in this country to green buildings. And as someone who worked in the Obama administration where we put billions of dollars into it, we have been trying to green buildings. So there's a lot of things that are gonna have to change dramatically um, in order for us to achieve the goal, but it's, it's totally possible. It's totally possible. And so, you know, as someone who has a kid, a three-and-a-half-year-old, like, we're New York City. Like, if we can't figure out how to do this, we, we certainly can't expect other cities to do it. But it's, it's, it's very, very, very possible. But I think it's going to be a fight, not just around the, politi the, the politics and the policy implementation stuff, but the actual implementation on a building-by-building -building basis of, like, how we get this done and how we all choose to collaborate on this, um, that's, that's where the real fight is. And um, I'm hopeful that we as New Yorkers are going to, you know, do the right thing on this. Does that answer? Is that helpful? Part of it. Okay. We can talk, yeah, right. talk offline. Oh, sure. So, these are all solvable business problems. So, the first is customer education. The second problem is the building-by-building building cost of engineering analysis and figuring out what's going on with your heating and cooling system. The third is the financing problem, which Sadie and Nysik are talking about. The fourth is the construction problem. And then the fifth is the high cost of measurement and verification and compliance with the actual laws. So within each of those pieces along the value chain, there's a significant amount of like waste and like white-collar service fees. Um, in the case of construction, it's blue-collar service fees. There's the fact that um, each piece of the value chain comes up with its own industry-specific assessment. So the construction people come up with the construction assessment. The financial people largely come up with the financing assessment. The engineers come up with the third assessment across multiple categories. And none of them can read or understand the other people's assessments. There's all sorts of solvable business problems in there um, that are the major obstacles to app actually implementing this stuff. So hopefully that's helpful. I we'll we'll take awesome. one more question, and um, I would encourage you all to stick around after this session when we will all have the opportunity to talk about a lot of the implementation challenges associated with 1253 and building retrofits. So we'll do one more question and then close it out. Thank you. Um, you mentioned the problem of assessing buildings is a, is a problem, something that needs to be solved. Have you seen anything across the country or technology that comes close to achieving what you think needs to be done? Yeah, that, I mean, that's what we do. So we've dropped the cost of uh, retrofitting buildings by um, 50 to 90 percent in Brooklyn over the last 18 months, and we've completed 500 projects. So what we do is we use machine learning and artificial intelligence to analyze simulations of the building according to all of the data that's available. So we scrape all of the data from the city, 
we have a bunch of data from NYSERDA in the city around you know, building audits, and then we identify patterns of building retrofits that have occurred and performed in the past and try to extrapolate onto your building kind of what makes sense. And that gets us directionally in a good enough place that we've been able to reduce costs. So those kinds of experiments, you know, I don't think we've figured everything out. I think that what dual fuel does as a contractor is exceptional. I think there's lots of different experiments, and the question is, like, what are we learning from these experiments, and how do we apply it to solving these problems in the right way at scale? But there's other companies who do things the wrong way, and they could, like, win the implementation wars, right? So that, that's kind of the business challenge. All right, um, so that's the end of this panel. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I know everybody's face, but not okay. by, um, not by sight. Green means go. Okay. And then turn it back off. You press it for one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Sure. What's that? Cards, but um, I give my email. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. Oh, you're with Eco. Oh, hey, hey. How are you? Yes. I didn't know we've met. <laughs> How you doing?
really haven't done any. So uh, we're on the steering committee. Um, yeah, 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 that's uh, But that may be maybe changing. I think there may be um, a little bit more engagement with that community. So, um, so I'm, I'm happy to you know, give your name um, to the person that's kind of in charge of Hey, we should be good. Yeah. We like it. Either or. We have a blockchain application for the top wide. That's not what we call Hi. Hi, I'm Kevin here. Uh, I mean, the, so the Hi, Carl. Hey, Kevin, how are you? See you. They don't do work. They're just Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Okay, we're going to get started in a minute. Send me your syllabus and I'll tell you if I think I can. I don't know. Hey, good to see you, Crazy. Yeah. How are you doing, yeah. man? Good. good. How are you? Thank you. Sorry. Thanks, everyone. I'm Jeff Gracer, a partner at Sive Patchett and Rizal and chair of the New York City Climate Action Alliance. Um, this last section should be the most interesting, so I hope you'll st stick around for this. We're going to have a facilitated discussion about the difficult implementation challenges under this new law. And I think it's going to be critical for us as New Yorkers to figure this out in a thoughtful way that's sensitive both to the needs of the communities in the city that could be adversely impacted by the new law or by uh, implementation that would 
potentially drive people out of their homes, but also to the needs of landlords who legitimately need to figure out how to fund uh, these retrofits or how to otherwise purchase green energy in order to comply. And we think that it, it should be an essential attribute of every New Yorker to try and figure this out and make sure that it actually happens. Because as Donnell Barrett said, if we, get, if we get it done here, other people can do it and we'll have no excuse. In that light, I'm very thankful to the Gordon Foundation for bringing today Tim Mealy from the Meridian Institute, who's a leading expert in facilitating discussions of how to move forward on difficult issues. Um, Tim, among other things, was recently retained to try and help folks in Washington figure out how to get a carbon tax into play and hopefully get it enacted. So he, I'm sure that he'll be very helpful here today. And also to introduce our discussion leaders, Adriana Espinosa from the New York League of Conservation Voters, Adam Hinge from Sustainable Energy Partnerships, Carl Hum from the Real Estate Board of New York, and Kevin Healy from Brian Cave, who's a fellow board member of the New York City Climate Action Alliance. So with that, I will turn it over to Tim. Great. Thank you very much, Jeff. Can everyone hear me? All right. All right, this is going to be the most fun part. I really like the energy of the last panel about New Yorkers can get it done. So I think you guys are all who are still here are the ones who are going to get it done indeed. So I'm Tim Mealy with Meridian Institute. I'll be serving as the facilitator, and I'm going to stand up a little bit because we're going to try to make this really interactive. So the way we're going to try to organize this, or the way we have organized this, is to there's a series of three questions that I'm going to ask the discussants here, the discussion leaders, and I'll start with you know one person and then go to another person to respond to that question from each of their perspectives. You heard the introductions. Jeff is a practicing attorney and has some government experience as well as um, some experience outside of government working on environmental issues. And Adriana is also um, the director of the New York program of the League of Conservation Voters. And we have some folks, Carl and, and, uh, and excuse me here, Carl and... <laughs> Adam, thank you. I was <laughs> sorry about that, Adam. With, uh, from the Real Estate Industry Association, an engineering perspective and a broader perspective as well. So we'll go through a series of three questions. After each question, then I'm going to open it up and have some folks contribute either their, your own thoughts or a follow-up question that you have. And I'll probably call on three or three or so of you to do it really rapid fire. And when you do intervene, please state your name and any affiliation that you want to you want the folks in the front of the room to be aware of when you make your comment or, or ask your question. And so with that, we're going to start with the broad implementation challenges. And the question that I'm asking uh, the discussants here is, you know, if you were the mayor, if you were in charge of trying to implement this program, what do you think would be the highest priorities? And when we know from the, the whole day here, we've, we know that there's going to be a new office of building energy and emissions performance established. There's a number of regulations that need to be promulgated on greenhouse gas coefficients, utilizing the renewable energy credits or distributed energy sources for compliance purposes. And of course, there's going to be a study on what role carbon trading can play to facilitate compliance. So with all of the requirements and also with the limited resources that we know the city has made available to, uh, to implement this program, um, let me turn to Jeff first, given your in government as well as outside government Kevin. experience here, if you could maybe share some thoughts and then I'll go to Adriana and then our folks from the real estate industry. Sure. Um, you know, I, people have said this a couple of times today, but this this is a law that requires implementation. Uh, 
It's got a lot of great ideas in it, uh, but the trick is going to be uh, bringing those great ideas into, uh, into reality. So I think the highest priority is to get uh, meat on the bones, get, uh, get the regulations going. Um, and, uh, and that is going to be a very, very complicated task. Uh, this is a very uh, uh, complicated law. If you, uh, if you look at it carefully, um, it, is, uh, it is on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, probably an 8 in terms of complexity from an environmental point of view. There's a whole host of regulations that have to be, uh, have to be established. For example, um, the, uh, the uh, building emission limits have got to be either confirmed or, or changed. Um, in the later years, there are going to be new building emission limits that are going to be put together. The rules of the game, the ground rules, have to be set up so that, uh, so that um, uh, um, building owners know uh, what, they're, what they're shooting for. They have to understand what, uh, what the ground rules are going to be for the, uh, for the deductions for clean energy uh, uh, and uh, offsets and, uh, and, um, and the carbon trading uh, program also has to be established. The uh, ground rules have to be set up for adjustments. Uh, you, uh, have certain, you have an obligation as a building owner to comply with the limits but under this law, there can be adjustments made to those, uh, to those limits for certain, for certain buildings that have special circumstances um, or for financial hardship and things like that. And finally, you've got to uh, broadcast that this is, a, uh, this is a law that has teeth. This is a law that has to be complied with. There are thousands of buildings, more than 10,000 buildings. I heard uh, earlier today something like 16,000 buildings are going to be subject to this law. How is the city going to enforce this thing? What the law itself says is there's going to be either a tribunal or the courts that are going to penalize, uh, but, uh, but the penalty is up to a certain amount or, 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 uh, or, or no more than a certain amount. And there can be adjustments based upon um, aggravating factors, mitigating factors. From a legal point of view, from a legal po uh, perspective, this is extremely complicated stuff. And, uh, and so the city has its job to do. I'm not sure what the priority should be, but I do know that they've got to uh, make, this, uh, make this thing a reality, and they have to do that by getting those regulations done and done in a collaborative way and, uh, and get the point across that this is something that is going to have to be complied with. Thank you, Jeff. Adriana, as an entity that keeps close watch on the mayor's office and what, what they're doing, what are your thoughts on this? Well, number one on my list is the budget. And I think you alluded to it earlier, Tim. Um, if this is a priority, then this, if we're going to put some meat on the bones, we have to see follow-up from the bill, bill's language itself into the budget, the fiscal year 2020 budget that's going to be finalized um, in just a few short weeks. And what I'm looking for is um, within the Department of Buildings budget, is there a new line in there for this Office of Buildings, Energy, and Emissions Performance? How many staff lines does it have? What does the budget look like? How does, how does that compare to other programs um, within the Department of Buildings that also have um, a similar, uh, for example, enforcement, like the, the healthy homes or um, lead prevention, uh, for example, different programs within, within DOB. So um, also beyond just setting up this new office, um, we heard John Lee speak earlier about how um, they're going to expand the retrofit accelerator. What does that mean? How much are they expanding it by? Um, and um, 
and also, is there going to be um, any any money on the table to help um, owners comply to comply with the law, specifically those who are um, uh, have can demonstrate financial hardship? Other things I'm going to be paying attention to is the level of engagement from um, statewide entities um, that have a stake in this. So how in engaged is NYSERDA? Are they going to be involved in this process at the advisory board level? What about NIPA or the PSC um, or Con Edison? Um, also, um, paying attention closely to what the results of the carbon trading study will be and the implementation plan that comes along with that. And looking at that, um, I think it is important. I, th I do agree that it's a, it's a critical component of this law, but it has to be, we've got to see the results of this study from an equity lens um, to, to make sure that we're not disproportionately burdening one community over the other. Um, and I think an, another point is that I'll be following outside of New York City mostly is the siting of renewable energy projects uh, outside of the city and the extent to which those are deliverable into um, New York City uh, because a main component of a big component of the bill is the ability to uh, be able to adjust your, your cap by purchasing credits in renewable energy projects. And um, based on the reality of our built environment, we're pretty limited in, in the five boroughs for how much re renewable energy we can actually site. And so I will be, um, and my organization will be following um, changes on the state level to maybe the, the Article 10 siting process, different regulatory measures to make it easier and faster to site renewable energy uh, around the state and make sure that we have solid and resilient transmission capacity to, to get that down uh, to get that down here. But I just wanted to echo um, what my colleague here said, which is um, I don't want to undermine the, the, the fight that happened to get this bill passed. It, it was incredibly difficult um, to get this over the finish line, uh, but the real work starts now and the implementation phase is, is, is um, extremely important. Thank you, Adriana. Um, let me turn to Carl first from the Real Estate Board and um, give your perspective on the challenge about implementing the program here. Yeah, so uh, thanks everyone for coming and uh, uh, thanks for having me here. Um, you know, I, I'll say this about the, the challenges is that it is an incredibly technical bill. Um, it is a technical approach in terms of how to reduce, uh, reduce carbon um, and ultimately how we measure it. Um, and unfortunately, um, there is not much uh, bench help with that. Um, there is a call for an advisory board which will help the Department of Buildings and the Office of Building uh, Emissions and Energy, and Energy Performance um, to, with that task, but you take a look at that advisory board um, and it is really much more political um, than it is technical. Um, there is not a professional engineer among the 16 folks that are supposed to be appointed onto this, uh, this board who is supposed to be uh, making very, very important recommendations, and you know, I'll list a couple of them for uh, uh, just to illustrate how technical um, this and how important this work is. Um, one is that they're supposed to come up with a New York City specific metric on how to uh, how to measure energy. Secondly, it's figuring out the carbon factors for electricity and steam in 2030, um, and it's also uh, 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 figuring out alternatives to assessing building energy performance. Um, you know, admittedly, it's nice to have, um, you know, the folks in the nonprofit uh, world, to have folks from the business sector and have folks from um, the uh, environmental uh, advocacy organizations on this advisory panel, but you really need technical expertise, and there is none. And we hope that, that there is some consideration for adding on 
a professional engineer, which should not be mistaken um, uh, for a what's currently on the bill is a, a building um, engineer and also an operating engineer. Very, very, very different from those of you who know the difference. Um, just reiterating Adriana's point with regards to funding, there is a huge um, responsibility that is going to be given to this new office, which, by the way, we don't even know who the director is right now, um, given the fact that they're going to be accepting applications for variances uh, within less than two years. We have no idea who the director is nor what, who the staff is. Um, so to that point, with regards to the budget, we're coming close of uh, of another budget negotiation uh, or budget renewal period. And the really, uh, from what I can see, there was no allocation with regards to this new office. And in fact, even within the council's um, assessment, um, their fiscal impact statement, um, and this is the document that members use to assess bills. Um, it only included $450,000 um, with regards to the impact on the city uh, for fiscal years uh, 20 and 21. Um, that's a that's a real loud statement, I, I think, with regards to um, what they think, or at least city council staff thinks, with regards to um, what it needs uh, to, to, to implement this bill. Great. Adam, uh, your company is uh, separate from the real estate board, of course. There's a sustainable energy partnerships. You have a technical engineering background. Maybe this is a great segue from, uh, sure. from Carl's um, comments. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll build a little more on what, what Kevin was saying of um, there, in, in, the final, in the final bill as it was passed, there are certain things where there's a fair amount of ambiguity, and I think that there's a need for some more certainty on a number of the key issues, particularly with regard to the 2030 limits that, that need to be set as soon as possible for some capital planning certainty, that you know, building owners are needing to make decisions on, on a daily basis now, and sometimes... Uh, designing and buying equipment that's going to be in place for the next 20 plus years and there's uh, a number of things right now with some changes that happened kind of at, at the the last minute with the bill you know it it uh, it specifies greenhouse gas intensity or carbon limits per square foot for different building occupancy groups per the building code yet there's also some language in there that it can be based on um, Energy Star portfolio manager space types. How those two things will work is actually um, how, how those rules will be determined can make a difference of a factor of two in, in what the limits might be in certain buildings, and there needs to be some certainty on that. Um, another one, um, the I think someone already alluded to it, but the, um, the greenhouse gas intensity of electricity and what that's going to be set for for 2030, um, that's a really significant issue. Um, there were a bunch of us were involved in the discussions of what that should be for the 2024 to 2029 limits, and we kind of encouraged that it would be good to have it for the 2030 to 34 as well. It gets complicated because um, we, if we're going to get to very deep carbon reductions, we need to send some signals for electrification, but then at the same time, if the um, emissions intensity of electricity is low, then it's easier to meet the carbon caps as well. So there are a few of these pieces that I think um, need some more clarity uh, much sooner rather than later to be able to uh, allow owners to be able to make good capital planning decisions and not be locked into some choices that um, will be really difficult to change and much more expensive to change five to ten years from now. Um, I think the other one uh, that others have already talked about is the carbon trading uh, study and implementation plan that uh, that could be a really important relief valve for buildings that 
would find it really, really expensive, and the money could be much better invested in, in savings in other buildings that would result in more carbon emissions at a much lower price, but it's an extremely complex situation. I've done quite a bit of work over the last few years looking at the Tokyo cap-and-trade model, which I think is an interesting precedent for this, but it's extremely complicated, and I think getting that going sooner rather than later to have some information will be important. Great. Thank you so much. So now we're going to open it up, and feel free to express a view as well as raise a question, and um, I'm going to try to call on a few of you, and then we'll kind of cycle through here, and we've got about 15 minutes for this uh, exercise, and Raise your hand if you have a question. We're focusing on implementation challenges. Here, sir. So Kevin and I had lunch. Can you, can you oh, say sure. who you are and what affiliation? Thank David you. Foreman, and I am with uh, EcoSafe. Thank you. Uh, Fred has done a couple of our projects. So Kevin and I were talking at lunch. Um, I already have a couple clients, and the mayor's office does a great job of downloading building data, which is local law 84 which has over 15,000 buildings in it that are 25,000 square foot and above. It seems like it would be an easy calculation to take that same data that you already have and be proactive to tell building owners um, where they would stand if today was 2024. And so to send out a proactive, just like they do a tax assessment on your building and the valuation of the building, to come out and say, hey, here's a motivation factor for you. If 2024 happened today, here's what you'd be. That would be my first comment I'd like the panel to ask. And then the second part of that would be the, the law is very complicated, as they've already said, as far as the categories. So multi-use buildings might have a category that it might have um, uh, living and residents. It could have retail. And those are all different building categories that have different penalties. And so how is the layman supposed to calculate that as well? Anybody else for the time being? Yep, over here. Let's get another one in here. Sir, if you could just rate. Um, endangered coordinating capital cooperatives. I usually don't see my. Um, I guess it's a show me the money when you talk about implementation. The mayor and governor were ready to give Amazon $3 billion in tax incentives to create 25,000 jobs. We saw this morning that this. Where's the $3 billion to help the people who will be paying to implement this in tax abatements and tax incentives? Because there's a big bang for the buck in providing those incentives. Okay, let's, let's take these. So the first is the, the tool, the assessment tool. If you were having to comply now, 2024, what would it look like, right? Yeah, sure. And, um, what, how, would, how would you think the multiple use categories would be addressed? And then uh, if there's all these new jobs, how, how, are the, how are the people who are paying those people whose job it is to do this, where's, where are they going to get the financing? Did I get that right, sir? Close enough? What's the city putting up? What's the city putting up? Anybody? I'll, yeah. I'll start with a couple Adam? of quick, quick answers on it. Um, but I think in terms of the question about notifying consumers right now, I think some entrepreneurial engineering firms are already starting to do that. They're... There's at least one that has a public calculator that they're sending out and encouraging people. Um, I know some others that are looking down the lists of that publicly available um, uh, website, and it wouldn't shock me if some of that ends up in the press at some point as well. Um, the, the multiple building types, as I said, that's complex, and I think we need some more interpretation on that because 
depending on how you look at it, you can come up with quite a different answer on that. Uh, the one piece I would say on the where is the money, there is already quite a bit of money that is being collected through your electric and gas bills that I think more of that will be available and can be directed perhaps uh, more, more effectively. I don't know if Lisa from Con Ed is still here, but she talked a little bit about some of that, and I think there'll be increases that'll be coming through that as well. So it's not city government money. There has been a proposal as well for additional city government money on this. Whether that happens or not remains to be seen. Just to follow up on the, the outreach and education por portion of this, it's good to know that the, there are some entrepreneurial engineering firms that are out there letting uh, building owners know this. They obviously have a financial stake in you know putting that information out there. And I think it sort of begs the question, whose responsibility is it to inform New Yorkers about a new law that's going into effect? And I think that outreach and education should be uh, a key component. I'm going to go back to the budget again. That should be part of this year's budget because it should be uh, incumbent upon this on the city and maybe maybe the mayor's office of sustainability since we don't have that new office in DOB yet, just to make sure um, that tenants are aware. I mean, we had like last year or the year before, they did a, a mass mailing to every voter just to let them know if they were registered or not registered. I mean, we, we could do something like that. Just to add my two cents to, uh, to that uh, from, a, from a legal perspective, um, I've seen a lot of environmental law, laws in my, in my life. I've never seen one where when you look at the limit that you have to comply with, you can't begin to understand it unless you're some sort of an engineer, which I'm not. And so it is really important for the city somehow to reach out to building owners to let them know what this law means, what they have to do to uh, be in compliance with the law. Regards to um, the question with regards to show me the money, I mean, I think that just from this afternoon it's pretty clear that um, the main mechanism that the city is intending to use is really PACE financing. Um, and that's just a form of financing. It's a loan at the end of the day. Um, and if you heard from John Lee this morning, I mean, the pricing with regards to the penalty was very, very deliberate in saying to themselves, I mean, basically there's an estimate within the city that this is gonna spur $4 billion worth of, of retrofits in construction, right? But they don't say who's gonna pay for that. All they say is that if you don't do it, we're gonna price the penalty in such a way that you will be uh, more inclined to undergo the retrofit versus the, the penalty. Okay, another round of questions on uh, Jeff Gordon and the moment in the back. Jeff? Okay. Just a, a couple of quick questions. One is um, I'd be interested in people's perspectives on the allocation of responsibility for compliance between owners, particularly in the commercial, in the commercial sector. And the second is, to the extent that this law depends on the development of, or one of the tools for compliance is the development of a greater uh, clean energy sources in the city, um, to what extent does that, do those details need to be answered now so that people who are developing those projects can actually aim towards standards that would qualify? Okay. Two questions, Roberta, and then. So, I asked this question, this perspective is from um, being president of a, of a landmark co-op here in the city, which underwent a change from oil, heat to gas, and it took us several years to finance and do this. 
So what advice would you give to someone like myself who ex expects that there are going to be legal challenges to this uh, legislation that could be, you know, take up years to resolve, but it takes years for a building like mine to plan and implement for what this might be, including the challenges since we are a landmark of trying to uh, perhaps um, not do some of the requirements since we're not allowed to change our facade. So what advice would you, would you give to somebody like me about timing and how long do you think those legal challenges would take to resolve? Great, one more and then we'll uh, let, let the discussants respond to these. So we got three good questions, I'll summarize them. Thank you, I'm Nancy Anderson from the Salon Foundation. This I think is probably a technical legal question. As the law is drafted, who has the power to actually sue a building for failing to meet its carbon emissions caps? Is it only the city? Are there citizen suit provisions or other third parties who could take a legal action? So let's, let's start maybe with the two questions that have to do with sort of uh, the, the likelihood of legal challenges and what advice do you have to uh, someone who's on the board of a landmark building and, and then the point about can other, is there citizen suits and then we'll come back to the other, the other two questions. I'll restate them in a second. So let's start with those two, anybody? Well, let me just, I'll, I'll respond to Nancy's first. There's no citizen suit provision in this law. It seems to me it would be the city of New York that has the police power to enforce it. Uh, with respect to um, uh, compliance, I, what I would tell any client is the law is on the books. You have to comply with the law as written. And what I would do if I were a, uh, an owner of a landmark building is I would, uh, I would map out a, uh, a pathway to compliance. And I, would, uh, and I would understand and make sure that I understand the mechanisms in the law that would allow you to have the time to comply What's of particular importance to you, Roberta, is the fact that it's a landmark building. There is a provision in the law that allows for an adjustment uh, for landmark buildings that have uh, legal constraints on, uh, on complying within the time frames that are required. But uh, unless and until a court um, somehow annuls the law, you have to assume that it's going to be uh, in force and that you have to comply with it, and you have to at least map out a pathway to, co uh, to comply. That's, that's my suggestion. Yeah, I would say that... Sure. I would say I would say the penalty provisions are uh, are severe enough that again I would have I would have a plan to comply and I would begin to implement the plan. If uh, if you think that there are vulnerabilities to the law, what you would do is you would, uh, consult with a lawyer who would give you uh, the lawyer's perspective on uh, on uh, the, the potential for success in a litigation. Um, I would not bet on it. I would not bet on this law being overturned. Okay. Carl or Adam, any on these questions? We have a couple others. I want to come back to Jeff's questions that I think you will have some views on, but any on these? I'll just add, I think, you know, on, on the landmark point, as, as Kevin said. Exactly. But I, but I think, you know, the, the no regrets is at least doing the study of what's it going to take to get you to that. 
um, and understanding what that is, and then understanding what's the time when you have to pull the trigger to get a capital project started and, and have that information in mind. And, and I will say that you know, that's probably going to be a much deeper hit for the 2030 targets than it is for the 2024. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But um, I think you know, that the 2030 uh, limits potentially are going to be quite deep cuts for a fair number of buildings. Okay, so Jeff had two questions. One was to what extent, excuse me, allocation of the responsibility between the owners and the tenants. Um, any thoughts, that, especially on commercial buildings, as I heard it? Um, any thoughts that any of you have on that? Um, and then to what extent... Uh, do the details regarding the clean energy components uh, need to be understood now to have those investments flow? Is that fair enough? Close enough? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll take the first um, question with regards to the owner and tenant responsibilities. I mean, I think that one of the um, flaws of the legislation is that it considers um, the total carbon output of the building without any consideration for what the tenant responsibility is. Um, it really doesn't uh, divide between, let's say, the tenant um, uh, load and also the base building load. And for commercial buildings, um, you know, that could be significant with regards to how much tenant um, uh, responsibility of, of total consumption is. I mean, it's upwards of 60 percent in some instances. Um, that's a, um, you know, from Reverend's perspective, is I think it was a lost opportunity in not trying to address that. I will say, though, that um, in recognition of this problem, the legislation does speak to having this problem considered by the advisory board. And once again, it just sort of reiterates my point that you really need technical expertise on the advisory board, which is just sorely lacking at this point. Okay. Anybody else? I'll just touch on the, the timing of the renewable energy requirements. Um, I think, like I said, on uh, earlier that clarifying the regulations on that of what is going to be allowed. I think there was a fair amount of specificity in the law that uh, gives kind of some of the, 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 guard, the guardrails, if you will, but how much, what the realistic availability both in 2024 and then beyond of the renewable energy credits and any rules on the more limited offsets um, sooner rather than later will let people make responsible decisions. So that could end up being significantly lower cost than the efficiency improvements, but we need more guidance. Yep. A follow-up? Just a quick follow-up. Um, I think the guardrails are clear for some, but for offsets... Offsets are very, very open wide open question. right now. Very yeah. wide open right now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's limited to 10%. Understood. Adriana, it sounds like you wanted to... Yeah? Um, no? Adam covered most of, of, of what I wanted to, to say, just that but we do need clarification on offsets and we have to wait for the advisory board to be impaneled in the first place before we get there so there seems to be a few st steps that are going to uh, time-consuming steps before we get there um, the, the adjustments that to, to your point um, we don't we don't know how that process will go and then um, to, to Carl's point about um, the responsibility and tenant versus versus owner I think given the reality that um, the answer is the owner um, is, is responsible. Something that I'm, I am interested in, 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 I guess, protecting against is what, what could be the negative or the unintended consequences of that? Um, if, um, if, if you are a landlord, you're a, a building owner, and you are responsible ultimately for getting us to this cap, how does that change what kind of tenants you want in your building and what kind of activities you want your tenants to do? And will that change some of the provisions that are in your lease? And I think that's something we want to completely uh, protect against. We want, um, you know, 
we want um, tenants who can who can conduct business um, at the, the best of their ability. Okay. Um, anything else you want to add, Kevin? Well, I'm just going to say this because I thought of it. <laughs> it's not exactly on point. It has to do with the advisory board. And, uh, and, and uh, Carl's comment uh, made me think of this. What worries me about this is that uh, if, given the time frame and the complexity of all this and the importance of all this, with the stakes being so high from an environmental point of view and from an economic point of view, the worst thing that can happen is for the city to follow the usual city administrative procedure act process of putting out a draft uh, of, uh, of regulations, taking public comment, issuing final regulations, and then waiting for the lawsuit. The advisory board could be a vehicle to avoid that kind of uh, process, which I think would be um, sort of um, uh, self-defeating. And, uh, and that advisory board is not limited to the members that are specified. It also allows for working groups and allows for working groups whose members would not be the officially appointed people. And I think so there's a vehicle in the law that uh, sets up the potential for future collaboration, which I think is absolutely necessary given the time frame and the importance uh, for turning this thing into reality. And not, and not allowing it to turn into a legal uh, uh, quagmire. So let me suggest we go on to the second set, and uh, this is a good segue, I think, from what we just heard. So the building owners uh, are the entities that are, that are the compliance entities. These, you, you are the ones who have to comply with the, most of the provisions of the law. Uh, it's clear that it's going to be challenging. So I want to ask Carl and, and Adam, what are your thoughts about what are those specific challenges that building owners are going to face, and, and what are your thoughts about how the, the building uh, ownership community can overcome those challenges? Um, so, you know, I, 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 think it's, I think it's worth to sort of um, take a look at who's affected by this. And I know that there were a couple of slides earlier this morning that talked about, well, it's going to be every building that's 25,000 square feet and above. Yes, that is true. The, the, the legislation does capture all those buildings. But there's also reference this morning about there are exemptions and carve-outs and everything else. And that's true, too. Um, there's a significant amount of, of exemptions, you know, given to houses of worship, um, uh, there are, there are uh, uh, delayed implementation for certain forms of housing, whether it be 80-20 housing or whether it be Section 8 housing. Um, and also there's exclusions um, for, um, uh, for rent-regulated housing as well. So those, taking all that off the table, right, who's left behind? Like who's left behind to really observe these very, very tough building emissions limits, and it really comes down to, to, to three or four different types of properties and, and those owners. Um, so the first is commercial, right? Um, and the second is going to be residential, market rate residential, which really kind of falls into two or three categories, condos, co-ops, um, and rentals. And then lastly, it's sort of like the nonprofit uh, uh, ownership of buildings, and that includes universities, colleges, um, and someone else had mentioned that they had, their, their nonprofit owns, owns property. So for each of these different types of building owners, the consequences of trying to follow strict emissions are going to be very, very different. Um, for the commercial context, I mean, Adriana had touched upon it earlier, so, you know, there could be an unintended consequence of trying to um, seek a tenant that's going to be a low-energy um, consumer. 
And so who's that going to... Who's that going to exclude, right? That's going to include your high energy users, that's, going to, that's, that's tech, that's life sciences, that's media, right? And, and, and true to form, you know, when um, uh, uh, Mayor de Blasio and City Hall had issued a sort of a list of you know, top 10 offenders, and after they, they, they made their press announcement over at Trump Tower, who was on that list? It was Google, it was Mount Sinai, it was Time Warner, right? And, and I think the unintended consequence is not only um, uh, uh, these tenants may not no longer be in the city, but there's also a longer consequence for the city itself in that we're going to lose a massive amount of jobs. And we are going to basically reverse 30 to 40 years of economic development planning that the city of New York has made a very, very deliberate, conscious effort to try to diversify the traditional uh, sectors of fire, finance, uh, insurance, and real estate, right, to try to diversify into tech, into media. And that's going to be basically squashed. So I think that the unintended consequence is not only just who, who, um, you know, who the top tenant is, but also the overall economic development um, activity of the city. And you, you know, some, some may argue that we might as well just put a, a, a out-of-business sign um, here in New York City. Um, secondly, so the sec second uh, tranche of, of owners is market rate residential, right? And that goes to the co-ops, the condos, and the rentals, right? And for the co-ops, and there's a very good article this morning um, in the Wall Street Journal, and they did their own independent analysis on what this bill would mean for co-op owners. And they found that in years 2024-29, and also in the compliance periods of 2030 and beyond, co-ops could be facing up towards of a million dollars in fines, annual fines. And these are co-ops that are not necessarily inefficient, but they've done everything they've could thus far, but because of where the limits are set, right? And we never had an explanation this morning as to how did you get to these limits? What was the scientific principles that went behind in establishing these building emissions? You didn't hear any of that this morning. But they're there. They're in the law. They're codified. And the law is the law is the law, as we all know. So what happens then, right? So what's going to happen in those situations is that owners, shareholders within co-ops may have to face a special assessment. That's, that, that, that's one, one possibility. And then lastly, nonprofit buildings, as I mentioned, with regards to uh, 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 you know, those include colleges and universities, those include um, uh, larger owners such as the YMCA, um, they're going to have to face um, some serious consequences with regards to, you know, how did they do enough to their building portfolios um, to meet the standards, and if they did, they can't go any further, they're going to have to pay the penalty. And, and I was at a lunch not too long ago where a representative from, I won't name the university, but they basically said that because of these limits and they know that they can't get any further from an engineering perspective, they're going to have to pay these fines, that that may limit their ability to provide an affordable education. So I think that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell the consequences okay. that we're facing. Adam, anything you want to add to yeah, I'll add a couple of things. I think, um, you know, particularly in the second compliance period, starting in 2030, there the there are some very significant reductions needed to get to those 2030 limits. And um, I, when John Mandike was doing his presentation this morning, he had the distributions up, but there are a fair, fairly large number of buildings that probably need to cut, you know, 30 to 50 percent or even more of their current emissions, and that potentially is going to be quite expensive. Um, during a lot of the discussions, it really wasn't discussed this morning, but during the Urban Green Working Group, 
there was more of an effort to focus on percent reductions instead of uh, the, the hard limits, and I think trying to sort that out and um, how these, how the, the hard basically carbon caps fit for buildings is a challenge. Um, you know, there are some quite new lead platinum and lead gold buildings that are significantly over even the 2024 limits, and it's not completely clear to me as an engineer when they were built, designed and built with the newest technologies only five or ten years ago, um, how they might be able to physically get down to the 2030 limits. So I, th I think there are some challenges uh, ahead. Um, all of that said, um, you know, I think Donnell did a good job of talking about some of the practical hurdles of, you know, building by building, how do we get there, and a lot of different places where there's a chance to get bogged down. Um, one of the, I guess I'd call it a challenge, but also an opportunity, there's really, there, there hasn't been a business where you have had to kind of get to a set energy or carbon limit. So I think there will potentially be a new business model set up. Um, some of you may have heard of performance contracting where, where you know, the Empire State Building was a well-known one where they, they did a performance contract with Johnson Controls to do some energy savings. That wasn't, though, getting to a guaranteed, here's what your emissions cap is going to be. So I think, you know, potentially there are some new contracting business models that may come out of this and um, a, an industry may grow on that. Um, and then I think the only other one I'd point out that hasn't really gotten much discussion, but if we're trying to move toward um, carbon neutrality over time, there's a big shift from uh, using fossil fuel in buildings toward electrification. Um, there is a reality that electricity as a fuel is significantly more expensive than natural gas or oil. Even with efficiencies, we are talking about cost increases. And um, I think that how that impacts energy affordability across the city, not just in large buildings, but when you move to start to electrify multifamily buildings is something that needs a lot more discussion. Okay. Kevin or Adriana, any thoughts on this question, mostly posed to the building owners, but go ahead. Well, my, 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 my primary thought is how important it is for this uh, statute to work. Mm -hmm. And the, concern that, the concerns that uh, Carl raised are, uh, are very, very important. And I'm just wondering whether there are uh, provisions of the law that as they become uh, uh, implemented and uh, become regulations can be used to assuage some of the concerns. For example, the concern you, that you raised, Carl, about uh, Google and high-tech companies, there is the provision that talks about adjustments uh, uh, for uh, buildings that have uh, special circumstances like 24-7 operations or high-intensity uses or that sort of thing. And, uh, and I'm wondering whether whether the, uh, the, uh, the people that are negatively affected by the law can dig into those uh, flexible mechanisms and adjustments and things like that to uh, turn this into something that is uh, workable and not something that's going to turn into uh, a legal uh, tinderbox. Okay. Adriana, any thoughts? Yeah, just in, in response to, to Kevin, I think that's the idea. If you read the adjustment section of, of the law, um, it looks like it's written and tailored to be for tech companies and for hospitals, um, just because they base it off of 24 hours or if you have extreme energy uses um, based on certain technologies. It's the way it's written, it makes it seem like it's for those kind of circumstances that Carl pointed out. Uh, but, but again, we don't know when that process is gonna be up and running. We don't know how you'll be able to apply for that process. Um, and then the last thing that I, I wanted to mention is um, about the, the metric and how we got to the carbon caps that we, we, we got to. I think the 
Mayor's Office of Sustainability and City Council has been um, very um, open with the fact that these were this is designed to get us to 40 by 30 and then 80 by 50 um, and so that's why why they are um, I guess as stringent as they are um, but maybe they could be a little bit less stringent until and still get us to 40 by 30 and 80 by 50 if there were more buildings in the pool um, and um, through just the, the normal legislative process and, and the, the, the dialogue and the debate that went on about this bill, as I think Carl pointed out in the very beginning of this, lots of different constituencies of, of buildings were taken out and, and now we've got fewer buildings to do a lot more rather than everyone has to put in a little bit. Okay, let's do... Sure, go ahead and then I'll, I'll do the round again. So just very quickly, I mean, in regards to, yes, there is, there is a... Um, section within the bill to, that allows adjustments for these, you know, 24/7 high energy intensive users, but it's only for a limited period of time. Yeah, and they, no, right, and, and, and they still have got to get to reductions of of 30 percent, which is still, you know, that's, that's that's quite significant. And then the second piece is that, you know, after a while, when you get to we start sort of doling out the adjustments and the variances, then you're you're you're, you're getting off the target of 40 by 30. And I think it goes back to the point that Adam. Um, have brought up with regards to, you know, um, percentage reductions. And that's something that John Mandyke touched upon briefly in his remarks this morning was that, you know, the, the, the Urban Green's approach was to try to push for a percentage reduction, which is very, very different from what we have today in this bill. And I think that, that again, the percentage reduction would have been a lot more even-handed, it would have affected a lot more buildings, would have spread the base out a little more so these reductions would not have been as stringent. Okay, let me start this round by asking those of you who are building owners to raise your hands. Okay, um, I'm going to make sure that you guys get a chance to engage uh, here, but raise, since we're in the, Mer the Great Hall of the, American Bar uh, the New York Bar Association, how many people represent building owners? Okay, this is your ch chance to try to, you know, raise some questions, make some comments on the special challenges to the principal point of compliance from the law, which are, which are building owners. So, it's going to raise a hand, so I'm going to take two or three, and we'll, here we go, right here, sir, and right here, and then right there. Thanks. Uh, Charlie Garland, The Innovation Habit, and uh, I'm, I'm curious about a lot of what was, has been talked about today, not all, but most of what we've been talking about boils down to demand-side management, right? And what happens if what we shift in terms of perhaps a new business model, a new way for building owners, for example, to... Uh, assimilate a new business model is through supply-side management and supply-side in innovation. We have a lot of opportunities for new technologies in um, providing and generating electricity through green, very low, if not zero emission sources. And we, there is an opportunity for property owners, for example, to do something, and I'll just use one, one example, but put up a, a wind turbine, even if it's a small wind turbine, on their building, near their building, on their property, what have you. And that may be a, one of a number of fantastic ways of having a real positive impact in that dimension. But on the flip side of that, we have to deal with the challenge of the reality in terms of implementation, permitting. And permitting, as I'm sure everybody realizes, it can be an absolute nightmare. And there's sort of a dual a bit of a contradiction here with regards to what the government, what uh, various elements of the city and state uh, agencies can help influence with regards to, well, we'd love you to do that, but at the same time, 
what the left hand wants you to do, the right hand is going to come, come and smack you because they're going to say, no, you can't do that. Right. So that, that okay. general kind of challenge. Hi, I'm, I'm Alan Grothier. Until recently, I was the manager of the New York City Benchmarking Help Center, so I'm somewhat familiar with the energy data uh, that the city collects. And I have a couple of questions in that regard. One is that uh, we faced a challenge uh, when Local Law 84 was replaced or supplemented with Local Law 133 in 2016, uh, where we were trying to do outreach to mid-sized building owners in order to get them to comply with the benchmarking law and provide data. And uh, that was a very, very difficult process given the kind of uh, contact data that the city has, the resources it might take for doing mass mailings, uh, which can get very expensive. So there's a, a significant problem, I think, for building owners who are not sort of in the loop, who are going to have to find out that this law exists and hopefully as soon as possible so that they can start to comply. And my second concern is the, uh, the data itself. I, I might have missed it during presentations today, but I, uh, I'm not sure exactly where the baseline for buildings uh, is or how it's going to be determined, whether it's with Local Law 84 data, 87 data, or if there's anything else going on. But I, I don't believe they have a full 10 years of Local Law 87 data yet, which is very detailed. And I know that uh, compliance rates and accuracy in various things in Local Law 84 are not you know, something that you necessarily can count on. So I was wondering if anybody has any ideas how building owners are going to find out about the law and find out what their baseline is so they know exactly how much work they have to do. Great. And there was one more somewhere back here. here it was. Jack Jenkins from Energy Engineers, Robert, Director Associates. So one of the main relief valves in the law today for an energy-intensive building owner is buying renewable energy certificates. And I'm wondering if you'd be able to comment on where we expect the capacity for the, generating those renewable energy certificates to be able to come from. Are we expecting any capacity to come from upstate or New Jersey or Connecticut? Or are, the, are we expecting all capacity to be in Zone J? And if the first of those, what mechanism will there be to ensure it is, I think in the words of the law, located in or directly deliverable into the New York City zone? Okay, great. So we have um, demand-side management, new business models. You know, is there a supply-side element to that? And if so, any thoughts on how to foment or, or encourage the supply side of the equation um, and uh, how to deal with the permitting and siting challenge as it relates to supply side? And then benchmarking, how to educate the building owners community, community I think it was, uh, about the, the law and the compliance uh, challenge and what... How to, and then how do you determine baselines for compliance purposes? And then the last one about the RECs, where are they coming from, um, especially given the provisions? Sure, go ahead, Roberta. Of course you can. <laughs> it's actually directed to the representative building owners. Um, two things. I'd like to know what the basis is for saying that New York City is out of business if this law goes into effect, because it, for my years it seems like that's a scare tactic. And the second question is, I read Cranes a few weeks ago, and it was those owners that were uh, doing that extra, had done that extra bit to make their lead, whatever, gold, platinum buildings. And they were complaining bitterly about this law in this article. And it wasn't so much that they didn't know how to make it better, it's that they didn't think they had to make it better. So I'd kind of like to understand what that perspective is and why it's not fair for them to reach the standard that other buildings are going to reach, even though they've done a good part of it already. Okay. 
I'm not going to repeat that. I think you guys got it. But let's turn to the other ones first. Um, demand side versus supply side and citing challenges, the benchmarking and education strategy, I mean the challenge and then the recs. And then we'll come back to this pointed question to the building owners. I'll start with a few. And I think the demand side versus uh, supply side is an important one. Um, I think I would agree with that on the electricity side of things. The reality is uh, half or more of the emissions are from fossil fuel, and I don't think there's as many supply-side options on that for carbon-free uh, fossil fuels at this point. There, there may be down the road. Um, and I'll kind of come around a little bit because the renewable energy credits one fits with that. The only thing I would disagree a little with you on the, the small-scale wind projects on top of a building, I think there's been a lot of research that show that those are interesting demonstration and education models, but don't really generate a whole lot of electricity in terms of the, the value relative to the investment. Can I, can I just address it? Because that's only one example. I mean, it could be solar. Well, small-scale small solar, solar is a very good, and, and I think you're going to... Yeah, gerbil wheels, maybe putting sensors in the pavement for walking down the road. There's, there's all kinds of things. How many of them get to anything of, you know, a tenth of 1% of Indian Point, I think, is, is one of the big questions. But we'll come back to it. And just, Jared, you want to weigh in real quick? Bioenergy. Yep. Okay. I think perhaps our facilitator doesn't Going. want people to jump, so I'll, I'll okay. go real quick. Um, notification, I agree, is critical. The, the data and the baseline, the baseline is not as important when you have the absolute limit because basically it doesn't matter what your historical had been, you need to get to this threshold. Well, you, you kind of need to know where your starting point is, and I would agree completely with you on some of the data quality issues and concerns, particularly on the medium-sized buildings, the 25 to 50,000 square feet. That, that, that don't, most of them don't even have a baseline that before we started. They've just required. Um, the renewable credits and where will the capacity come from, I think that is a big question that um, located in or directly deliverable into was one of the last-minute negotiation pieces. and. Um, uh, right now, I think the, the availability is um, kind of two, what people have sometimes called extension cords coming in, uh, the Champlain-Hudson um, interconnect and the Empire State connector, which are both around 1,000 megawatts. Um, it's not so much the interconnection on the Champlain-Hudson one as the source that has raised some concerns. It's, it's large-scale hydro in Canada, um, but I think the you know, the clarification on um, where what will be allowable to come in and be counted for the RECs um, and will some of what the governor is proposing as um, some of the offshore wind, will that be able to be directly connected, directly deliverable into Zone J is, is, is an open question. So I, I think that is going to basically be some clarification. I think some of the developers that have projects that have been you know, possibilities for a while, now have some new juice to go out and try and raise funding for them. Um, so you'll see some of that develop. The question is going to be how quickly can they come online and be able to deliver for 2024.
If, if it has transmission that can plug it directly and get, get that wind turbine, that power directly into New York City, if you put it in a farm somewhere that doesn't connect to those transmission lines, then you don't get any benefit of big. It just depends on where the, where the transmission is. Um, I think I wanted to follow up on this point um, because I was negotiating on the, on the, the rec piece um, up until like 10 p.m. the night of the, the bill's aging, so I'm very familiar with the language located in or directly deliverable to. Um, and I think part of the, from the advocates, the environmental advocates' perspective, why we were looking for, for that is because we wanted building owners to have a stake in the, in the game of greening our grid. We wanted them to care how much renewable energy um, was, was being cited. And um, as I said in the very beginning, we are very behind in citing renewable energy in New York State. There's like three times as much wind power in Texas than there is in New York. And Texas does not care about wind power. Um, it's oil and gas country. Um, I'm from Texas. I will just mention that. Um, well, get going. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and that's also the, the permitting and siting issue that you brought up. It's a, a, a maze of different regulatory um, agencies. You know, the city is very limited in what they can do um, on a local level to, to bring more renewable energy projects. But there are two bills that um, actually the, the same bill sponsor for 1253, Councilmember Costa Constantinides, uh, passed a few years ago um, uh, related to wind power specifically. One is streamlining the, the, the permitting process for small-scale wind turbines on the top of buildings. I will echo, though, whoever it was on our panel that said that um, that is that is a good thing, obviously, but it's not going. You're not going to mute your cap with with a small wind turbine on the top of on the top of your building. Uh, and the another bill that he passed was a a map of a map of New York City's wind power potential. So looking everywhere in New York City along our, our waterfront, also on top of buildings, just to, to map and figure out what is our potential is and so once that report is complete which probably I think it has another six months or so um, we'll know um, how much we can get from that and to to the Rex point and where it's going to come from I, I agree that the at least the city seems to to believe that most of that's going to come from hyd the hydropower from from Canada which um, has sort of divided the in environmental community on, on whether or not whether or not they see that as a good thing um, and I think that we, we also wanted, it, wanted to make sure that offshore wind off the coast of Long Island, for example, would be included in, in, in the wrecks. And, but I think to Adam's point, we, it's not clear of whether or not that power is going to be connected into New York City's grid. Right now, it's looking like not. Um, and so there's like the, a, an innovative and a huge renewable energy, utility-scale renewable energy project going up in, in, um, in New York State. And in New York City isn't going to get... Um, a, a direct benefit um, from that, from being able to, to like, uh, comply with this bill from that. They get an indirect benefit because, you know, it takes um, Long Island will be covered, and so we don't have to worry about them as much. But. Okay, let me just say one word, and then I'm going to ask uh, Carl to respond to Roberta's questions. Uh, um, Michael Gerard, Professor Gerard from Columbia Sabon Center, has created a pro bono legal force, including something called the Renewable Energy uh, Defense Fund or something to like that. So there are a bunch of lawyers um, who are prepared to provide pro bono services to assist project developers when you're running into challenges on renewable energy siting. So I would urge you to look into that. So uh, the questions were essentially, you know, what's the, what's the basis for the claim that you're going to 
lose all these high-tech and other forms of, uh, of, of economic activity here in New York, and then um, also, I think, in terms of the lead certification buildings and the story that underlies that right. particular so, article. I mean, you know, you can call it a scare tactic, but these are conversations that I've had with not only our members, but also um, industrial property owners. Um, it sort of came late to the game with regards to this bill and realized that the, the emissions limits that they're expected to um, – to abide by is going to make it impossible for them to carry their businesses. Um, so, you know, so you know, the, this thought right now, they're thinking about, well, you know, across the river, there is no such building emissions um, uh, uh, that would be imposed. And, um, and in fact, frankly, land is cheaper out there. And you know, this is a sector, uh, the manufacturing sector, that you know, having been a former Bloomberg um, administration appointee. Uh, uh, um, uh, Manufacturing is a sector that the city has been really been trying very hard to keep, and this is because of these emissions limits that they stand a really great risk of losing. And so my statement about being out of business is I don't think it's out of context or out of hyperbole, but it's really from the direct from the mouths of these owners. Um, and then secondly, with regards to um, um, your question with regards to lead, I, I cream. I think it's more of what Adam had said in regards to. I don't recall the article specifically, but my just from my conversations with those folks who may have been citing that article, they kind of feel like this is this is we're about as as efficient as we can be, um, you know, uh, but for um, basically emptying the building out. And again, it goes to the point of kind of. Well, all right. Let's go. Uh, good. It seems like a good question indeed. Um, let's let's go to the last question here, sir. I'll get you in uh, if I could. Uh, just give me a moment here. So, uh, this this question is related to the the rent regulated and affordable housing issue, and you know we've heard a lot about this during the course of the day. And Adrian, I'm going to ask you maybe to summarize it from your own perspective how. Uh, how the, the law has tried to balance the need for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also helping to minimize localized air pollution from buildings and protecting housing affordability. And so just provide your perspective, if you will, about the balancing act that went into the formation of the law itself. And then we'll open it up and see if people have comments or questions about that. And other panelists, feel free to share your own thoughts on, the, on this uh, element of the puzzle that we're trying to solve here. So, Adriana? Sure. Uh, so I'll say to start that in the the beginning when the bill was first introduced, rent-regulated buildings were completely exempt. Um, and through the, the great work, the, even though at that point the uh, great work of the, the Urban Green Council's buildings partnership had done, had given a list of these prescriptive, low-cost prescriptive measures that buildings could 
um, could undertake that we've heard a lot about earlier in, in the day uh, that would not trigger a rent increase. And um, so there was a lot of work that went into getting those built into the bill. But before I get into that, let me back up just to say that the, the reason why this is such an important issue has been, I think, covered heavily in this, uh, in this event. And I think that Cecil and Pete both did a good job of explaining why it was important. Um, and that is because um, we are in an affordable housing crisis in New York City. Our rent is is, a, is skyrocketing, and we are have we are seeing a smaller and smaller pool of um, affordable units. And we didn't want um, this progressive um, policy that was designed to combat climate change to have a negative consequence of displacing people uh, of 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 literally hiking their rent high enough to pay for these upgrades that they could no longer afford it and they had to leave. That's what we were, that's what we were trying to, to protect against. And so that's why the prescriptive measures um, came up. And um, it was a, a rare instance where I think the, the entire broad coalition of the building's partnership agreed that that should be built into the bill. So we, all of us, um, you know, pushed, pushed hard on that. Um, it, so that was the, my number one reason for wanting to, you know, in, include uh, protections for rent-regulated units. Another, another reason is um, ensuring that we have more buildings in the pool, that, ev that there, more buildings have to do something in, instead of um, limiting who, who, has to, who has to do it and meaning they have to go much further. Um, and as we said earlier, the, the, there was a lot of negotiation towards the end where, you know, um, more buildings were, put, were given those prescriptive measures, like churches uh, or houses of worship were given those prescriptive measures. Um, and um, if there were exclusions for, you know, Section 8 housing and other forms of, of, of affordable housing. Um, and um, I agree with what actually Pete Sikora said earlier, which I do not see that as, um, as a good thing because it does not strike the balance between those two interests that I just mentioned. Um, you are taking more buildings out of the pool and you are not adding protections to tenants. Um, Section 8 housing and the senior affordable housing um, is under completely separate laws as um, New York rent stabilizer, rent regulated buildings. So um, they're not, the MCI, the issue of, of, of major capital improvements that we, are where we were trying to protect against um, is not relevant in, the, in these cases. So we're just, we were just taking more buildings um, out of the pool. Um, and then finally, um, another reason why this was a big, a huge sticking point for my organization is, um, is because we didn't want to contribute, contribute to the already huge and growing um, economic uh, disparity that, and inequality that exists in the city um, uh, where your socioeconomic status um, plays into your likelihood of getting asthma, your likelihood of living near in industrial facilities and, and, and being exposed to things like diesel pollution um, and all sorts of other um, disparities. We didn't want, um, in the original version of the bill, these buildings to be excluded, meaning they don't get the energy efficiency um, upgrades and they don't get the air quality, local air quality improvements that buildings um, that, uh, from more, like, owners of well means can get. We, we didn't want to contribute to that. And so um, we, we fought really hard to get the prescriptive measures built into the bill. We were successful at, at, at that, thanks to the work of like everyone who was part of the building's partnership. Um, and um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Great. Kevin, any thoughts you want to share about this? 
Uh, the, only, the only thought I have actually is a question for you, Adriana. Um, I, I notice, and it, this was mentioned uh, earlier today, there is sort of a reopener with respect to uh, rent-regulated accommodations in the, in the law, where I think it's the advisory board is supposed to come up with recommendations as to what to do with respect to, uh, to those sorts of buildings um, when it delivers its report in uh, 2023. And my question is, um, is there some expectation to uh, bring those buildings into the fold? Um, or are the prescriptive measures really what is going to stick? That's a good question. And um, you would think if, if um, the housing and tenant advocates are successful up in Albany and are able to negotiate changes to the rent laws that make it um, make tenants more secure and, and thus building owners can, can um, uh, without risking, um, without negatively impacting their tenants, can make these upgrades that we would then bring more buildings into the fold. I think that would be great. Um, I think that there's a political reality, though, here associated with it, and that is that um, there's a lot of momentum around this bill amongst city council to get it done. I don't know that we will ever see that kind of momentum specifically about a, a bill that only impacts low-income tenants. Um, I just don't know that that would be palatable, and I think it would, it would scare a lot of council members. Adam, Carl, any thoughts either one of you have on this? No, I mean, I'll just echo that. I mean, Adriana said with regards to that there was a concerted effort of, from the uh, Urban Green uh, Buildings Partnership to really um, try to treat rent regulated um, differently with regards to um, what, they have to, um, what they have to do. But I will say that um, you know, there was always this expectation that they will be brought back somehow, right? And, and, and I think that it, a lot depends on what happens in Albany. Um, and either which way, I think it's still going to be an uphill battle to sort of bring them back in because I think that the ship has sailed in many ways. And my fear is that, and I think that, you know, from a larger perspective, is that that broadening that base to have more buildings participate, I think that that opportunity has been lost, unfortunately. And then, and then the question is whether there's another way to skin the cat, whether there's another way to, uh, to uh, achieve deep reductions from those buildings through uh, carrots instead of sticks. Okay, let's open it up again. Sir, you had a question before. You want to take advantage of the opportunity? I wasn't able to fit you in. And then we'll go to you. I kind of wanted to make a comment first. That's okay, I think I'm good. Can you guys hear me in the back? <laughs> I just want to make a comment first and then uh, ask a question. So my initial comment is we were kind of looking at our specific... Can you say who you are, sir?
have energy right under our feet. Why can't we just tap into it? The regulations to get into that energy are unbelievably convoluted. But there are creative people who are tapping into the pumping, into our subway lines. We're pumping water out of our subway lines and just dumping in the river to fill it. Why can't we tap into that? Why can't we tap into effluent lines? Why can't we tap into like all kinds of stuff? If this is an existential battle, let's act like it's an existential battle. Let's do what we need to do to survive. And let's do this, the, the smartest things first, and then the secondary, you know, the next smartest things next, and then the tertiary things after that. First things first, get solar, you know, get solar up on your roof. Actually, put your house in order. Insulate your building, and then in the future, reskin the buildings with solar. Not only does it generate electricity, it decreases the value of your building. So now your underlying apartments in a market rate setting, you're more valuable. Great. Especially if you can do it cost effectively. So the question is, do you guys see it that way? Yeah. I hope they all say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sir. Um, the third prescriptive measure uh, lists maintaining the heating system. And then it goes on and says, including clean components. Good operating Can you condition. Just tell us who you are, sir. Oh, uh, Richard Fennelly, Coil Pod. Thank you. Okay. Um, it misses completely HVAC R cooling equipment, such as refrigeration, air conditioners. Um, the G7 environment ministers met in Metz, France, two weeks ago. And in their communique, they had one section on energy efficiency. And the only sector that they mentioned was the cooling sector. Refrigeration, AC units run with dirty coils, clogged filters. There are two studies out where the um, uh, possible reduction in energy, uh, stationary energy for New York City would be either 4.6 million metric tons or 8.5, depending upon which study you look at and which extrapolations were made. Uh, we think it's 4.6. The Carbon Trust in the UK came out with a global number that suggests it may be 8.5. Was anything ever considered in regard to refrigeration, AC, preventative maintenance? I'm not talking about refrigerant management, which is the project drawdown. Um, approach. This is the outside the coil uh, solution where you just do preventative maintenance. You're going to have a huge herding of the cats problem because folks don't want to do it. Okay. But it could be done overnight. All right. Thank you. Anybody else? Question or comment? Yes, sir. Over here. And then we'll go back to the. Okay, great. All right, so we have um, essentially uh, a vision of how to do this in, 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 in you know, market rate co-op buildings and all the way down to uh, ground source, uh, you know, geothermal, using geothermal energy, 
How do you all react to that? Um, refrigeration, was that considered? If so, you know, can you unpack that for us? And how do the folks who are just now learning about this kind of get engaged and go and have some voice for emissions uh, 2.0, as he put it? I'll start with a couple of quick ones. Um, I think your idea of all the things that you're talking about there would be great. I would love to see that demonstration project, and I hope that some of the folks who were up on the previous panel can either help finance it and or publicize it with a case study. I, I, I think one of the things we really need is a lot more of those case studies in the, in the near future. So the only one piece I might question is when you said do first things first, second, second, and all of that. Sometimes the first things first are the ones that have a quick payback, and you want to package those with the stuff that have longer paybacks and do a comprehensive package. That turns into a little bit of a, a dance of how do you not wait for perfect being enemy of the good and get something started. So, but, but I look forward to visiting your project in a case study tour in the next two years and your early implementation before 2024. Um, the cooling thing, I, I think, you know, the focus in the, um, I think the people who were most involved with the uh, prescriptive measure list aren't, aren't necessarily here anymore, but I think it was mostly a heating focus instead of a cooling focus. For the most part, in the um, rent-regulated buildings, heating is much, much bigger end use than cooling. Um, you know, the reason that the G7 focused on cooling is if you look at where the global energy and emissions growth is, it's in developing and emerging economies in India and Indonesia where basically only a quarter of the people have fans now, and if they get to income levels like China, um, we're going to see, you know, massive levels of new air conditioning, and that's where the focus for the G7 has been. Um, but nonetheless, there is an opportunity. Um, you know, maybe that is something that, that could be into how do you get to 2.0. Um, I, I guess I think maybe I leave that to Adrian and some others of how do you get engagement for, for where we go from here. Go ahead. Well, um, to, to me, your question is probably the most important question. As I said before, if the city were to follow its, you know, standard rulemaking process, I think we'd lead to nothing but trouble. And, uh, and I believe that the advisory, uh, the advisory board and the working groups within the advisory board could set up a process that would allow people who are interested and who are affected by the law to have input. You know, there are techniques, workshops, um, you know, meetings uh, of, uh, through, through REBME or other organizations. There are ways to reach out to the affected co uh, community to make sure that their voices are heard in the context of setting up the ground rules for this, uh, for this law. I, I think it's immensely important that, uh, that your concern be addressed. Adriana, any thoughts on these questions? Yeah, just briefly. Um, I wish that I had an answer for you on, on the cooling and, and how much it, or if it was considered. Um, I was part of, obviously part of the Urban Green Council Buildings Partnership, but there were, there were different working groups over the past two years that took a look at different issues, and I was not on the prescriptive measures um, subgroup. Um, but I do know, for example, NRDC worked heavily um, on, on that list, but I think Adam brings up a good point just about the reality of, of New York City. I, I don't have central air. I don't know if, you, if everyone else in this room does. Um, but certainly look like an opportunity that needs to be looked into. Um, and then in regards to bringing, bringing more people in, I, I, I spoke in the beginning about how outreach and education needs to be uh, a huge component of this. And, um, and I think it's going to take um, advocacy from tenants, frankly, to convey to their landlords 
that this is an existential fight and that um, whatever it takes, it, we have to, it has to get done and we have to reach 40 by 30 and, and, and 80 by 50 um, and beyond. And um, I don't know what 2.0 is going to look like um, at this point because we're, we're still talking about when 1.0 gets implemented. Um, um, so I wish I had a better answer, but I, I, I do think that um, that there's definitely room, room for more, more engagement. And, and although there was a really serious um, long process with the buildings partnership that Urban Green did, um, it certainly wasn't exhaustive and didn't in, in include everyone. And all the re recommendations that came out of that process did not get put into the bill. Um, the Urban Green didn't write the bill. Um, ultimately, that was up to the city council to decide which of those pieces to include and not. Okay. Adam? I just want to, um, Kevin mentioned both in his opening remarks and just now about the uh, potential regulatory quagmire. And, and I think one of the things that all of the different stakeholders need to keep in mind in the next little bit, by, by 2024, a building has to have made all of its reductions and have a full calendar year of reduced energy use and resulting emissions. So that means that the project has to be done by the beginning of 2024. Some of the requirements in the law mean that regulations don't have to be set until 2023. I think we have a potential pile up there and maybe one of the pieces, it's not going to get us to version 2.0, but to have 1.0 really work, there may need to be a push to have some of those regulations or at least serious signals on critical pieces uh, communicated much earlier. Okay. Carl, any thoughts you have about uh, oh. No, I mean, okay. I just close it off by, I mean, I'll just say, you know, your, guard, your point about 2.0 is, is critical, and I think that the more folks know about this, the, the, the better. I mean, I, I made mention in regards to initial property owners sort of coming into this late and realizing how um, uh, we're a precarious situation they're in because of this. Um, but, um, you know, certainly from our perspective and certainly from an organizational perspective, we're going to be doing a lot more education on this. Okay, we have just five minutes here before we have to adjourn. Where's Amy? Um, Amy, so I'm going to modify our last little item here just a bit. Let me ask the audience, anybody who has a thought about a topic that you were hoping to learn more about, just what are the key words regarding that topic? Who are you and what are the key words so that we can collect this for, for future dialogue and deliberation? So anybody want to just say, I, I thought I was going to hear more about X or Y and I didn't hear that. I'm, I want to learn more about that. Okay, we're going to go right here. Anybody else? Yeah, so this is Jack again. I'd like to hear more about how building owners are likely to pass on requirements or the rules, this, this, this to their tenants. Like what, what are tenants going to see? Okay, anybody else? Right here, yep, sir. Hi, uh, Ellie Hudits at ERS. And I was just curious about um, how the tech industry, we talked about the uh, energy-intensive uh, industries, um, but some of them have sustainability goals and yep. corporate goals that Just might align this. with this and might make this city more appealing to them. Is that naive or is that um, a real perspective that we could market as a city? Okay, I was thinking the same thing, those very same companies. Yep, Jeff in front here. A lot of following up on that point. Yep. Following up on your point, a lot of the tech companies have global environmental uh, goals on renewable energy, like 100% renewable energy. And I think one of the structural challenges in this law is it only recognizes efforts that are in New York City. So to what extent should global efforts um, be recognized and credited? I realize that's not what the law says now, but I think it would be something that should be looked at. 
Okay. Anybody else? We're, we're not going to respond to these. We don't have time, but just I'm trying to like for future discussions. So I had a, I had a question about uh, natural gas. So if we're going to use, let's say we're going to use natural gas within a building, um, what are acceptable uses of natural gas? Like if we're using it for cooking, that may be a very low intense, uh, intensive use. If we're using it for, let's say, uh, combined heat and power or cogeneration, that actually might be beneficial if, if, the, if it's the same stuff that you're using centrally and you're kind of trying to get off of coal. I know we're going to try to go all to, all to solar and other, like hydro, et cetera. But I would be interested to hear what people's perspectives are on natural gas as it relates specifically to cogeneration because of the efficiencies of it. Okay, Amy, one more over here. I actually had a discussion with Lisa earlier from Con Ed's point of view because some of the ECMs, which are energy conservation measures, where you're trying to reduce electricity and use natural gas, um, those are very acceptable energy conservation measures, but the problem is that you have to get Con Ed approval. So you get stuck in the quagmire of Con Ed trying to get allocated more energy on the natural gas side, and then there's a moratorium going on right now, as everybody has read, about extra natural gas. So that's going to create a logjam going forward. Okay. Anybody else? Yep, go ahead, sir. Stand up. Refrigeration. No. natural gas feedstock consumption for electric generation, that Transmission and distribution are the model. Yeah. I think there's some folks might have a good answer to that, so why don't you? Okay, why don't you guys follow up and have a conversation about that? Anything else? Yeah, one more, and then I'm going to wrap it up here. I think it would be interesting to see, and it might be helpful to have a serious study of you know, taking the 20% the of the New York City buildings that are in the first compliance period, whether it would be possible to retrofit those buildings um, in order to comply. Like, in other words, I don't know if the data is actually out there to analyze in a serious and methodical way what would be involved okay. to get those buildings to the compliance point. Great. So I'm hoping that some of you will have follow-up conversations about these. Uh, I just wanted to see if there was a release valve that we could take advantage of for the few moments that we had. And I'm going to turn to Amy to wrap things up. Great. Thank you so much, everyone. That's our program. Thank you to Adriana, Kevin, Adam, Carl, and Tim, of course. Um, and thank you to all of you for participating in this lively discussion. Um, I hope that you have had, uh, I hope that you've learned something today. I hope you've had the opportunity to connect with some of your colleagues. Um, and, and thank you to everyone for participating and joining us. Take care.